Greetings. This is episode 41 of the Feed the Ball podcast. I'm Derek Duncan, and today my guest is Mike Clayton. As everyone knows, Twitter can be a cesspool of spite, bile, argumentation, and trolling. It can also, if you train your feed productively, be an informative gathering spot for conversation among people with similar enthusiasms. One of the guiding lights of golf Twitter is Mike Clayton, whose clear-eyed, succinct observations are routine reminders of how important it is to protect the integrity of the game and its architecture, while simultaneously laying bare organizational hypocrisy regarding rules and equipment. Of course, Clayton's importance to golf flies parsecs beyond social media. He's an Australian amateur champion who played on the European tour from the early 1980s until 2000, winning several events without ever losing his playing status. Over the last 20 years, he's led several golf course architectural firms and is currently a principal at OCCM, Ogilvy Clayton Cocking and Mead, arguably the leading design company in Australia. In addition to new creations like the recently opened Yangtze Dunes near Shanghai, OCCM has carried out a number of sensational renovations across the country, including important restorations of numerous historic courses in Clayton's native Sandbelt region. He's also a beautiful and riveting author, the kind of architect player writer that doesn't seem to exist much anymore. Last fall, he released a collection of essays along with co-writer Charles Happel titled Preferred Lies and Other True Golf Stories. If you haven't ordered a copy yet, you must. It's one of the most ribald, entertaining, and insightful golf books I have. I picked it up and didn't put it down until I'd finished it two days later. Clayton is by far one of the most literate, passionate, experienced, and knowledgeable people in the game. If there's such a thing as a divine spirit that flows through golf and unites all of us, Clayton embodies it. His golf midichlorian count is off the charts. That's a Star Wars reference, by the way. Should an imperial executive from the USGA or PGA come and strike him down this very second, Clates would return as a force spirit and continue to guide and goad all of us until the good of golf is finally restored. Again, Star Wars. I'd never spoken to him before, but like many of you, I'm sure I felt I know him well. For a year, I've wanted to have him on the podcast, but always hesitated due to his regular appearances in media and his regular presence on the State of the Game and IC Golf podcasts. I felt like, what could I possibly ask him that he hasn't already talked about over and over? But finally, I realized it just doesn't matter. Getting inside Clayton's mind and just listening to him speak about anything related to golf and golf architecture to hear his passion is worth the time. It's impossible to listen to him talk for at any length of time on basically any subject about golf and not feel the complete enthusiasm and dedication that he has to the game. I'm positive this is going to be worth your time too. It's a long podcast and I do think we did break into some fresh areas, but the point is to simply sit back, indulge in the quality of thought, and listen to him tell stories and opine on some of the world's great golf courses. We also, toward the back end, get into some interesting thoughts on Greg Norman and where OCCM would like to head into the future. So just sit back, please, and enjoy listening to Mike Clayton, whom I consider the moral conscience of golf. Just kind of a hot day in Melbourne for the Australian Open, so... The tennis players can suffer while we're inside in the air conditioning. Well, it's hot, like a hundred. No, it's no, it's actually not. It's about thirty. So okay, that, um, I don't, I don't know what that translates 30, to. Into- thirty is kind of ninety. <laughs> yeah, right. But I'm sure, but I'm sure it's hot when you're playing five sets of tennis out in the open. No kidding. With no shade and belting around. Anyway. Yeah. Well, it's like the U.S. Open here. It, they do it in August, and it's just. I mean, yeah, you can't even crazy, imagine. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I don't know how they do it. Tennis is a weird. Do you ever play tennis? No, not really. I've hit a ball, but um, I've had too many. Prof- I've had too many professional players who are friends who told me I was beyond help and not to bother. So that was enough for me. 
It was. I mean, that must be interesting for you to hear that on the tennis front when you know they probably feel the same way when they pick up a golf club. No, they're much better golfers than I'm tennis players. But, um, <laughs> I, tennis, never, I never caught into tennis either. I wasn't, you know, I batted a ball around a little bit, but um, just didn't do anything for me. I wonder if it's a harder game to play than golf. I'm not sure. I, when I, I was in high school, I, I played on the golf team, and I remember one after the season banquet, the tennis coach got up and took a shot at the golf team, and he said, in golf, you only have to pay attention to the golf for like one second. That's how long the swing takes. And yeah. in tennis, you have to be engaged the whole time. And he was he like, who who goes after golfers? Like, we're, we're like, the yeah. you know, we're off on our own. Like, nobody cares about us. Why is the tennis coach going after us? But he seemed to think that tennis yeah. was a more uh, difficult game to play. I wonder. I, I think they're both difficult and they're both, it's almost, I think professionally, it's the same game, really. You know, it's a different game, but it's the same dynamics of, you know, single young kids traveling around the world trying to make money at a brutally tough game and takes the same skills and disciplines and, you know, the, the, the skills it takes to succeed at both are pretty similar, really. Yeah, I think to go into <laughs> being at that level, I'm sure. One of the interesting things to think about is in tennis, it would seem to me like once you got really proficient, when you're in the middle of a volley, you're thinking, but you're not, there's no thought about your mechanical form. You know, you're thinking about where you want to yeah. place the ball. Where in golf, yeah. I, you could testify to this, you know, playing at the highest level. I'm, I'm imagining at some point you're still thinking about your swing because you have so much time and to lead up to it. You have such, you know, you're you're going through all your thought processes and nothing happens until you pull the club back. So that at some level you are thinking about your mechanics in some yeah, way. I think, yeah, I mean, I guess the tennis player would argue that what you're saying, it's, it's much more reactive. And you can't be thinking about your mechanics when you're, I'm sure Roger Federer is not thinking about mechanics when he's playing those strokes. He's so ingrained that. Mind you, I'm, you know, I wonder, I guess it depends how you're playing. Doesn't it in golf? Whether you're thinking about your, when you're playing well, you're probably not thinking about your mechanics. But I think yeah, golfers that, are always. I mean, someone it was a, someone. Pro, I think it was a woman pro. I, um, I caddied in the LPGA event in Melbourne in 975, and a girl I caddied for played a practice round with some with a good player, Sandra Palmer or someone who said, "Everyone's got one bad one bad fault, one bad move in their swing. Everyone's got something." that always comes back to haunt them. And it's pretty true. So they're always aware of that bad move or that fault or whether the club goes too far back inside or lifts up too much or too flat or whatever it is. There's always something that just isn't. There's always bugging you. You're always aware of and you're always working on it. Did you, anyway. Was that true for you? Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. What was your? Absolutely. Did you have one one well, flaw, the, or did the, it change over time? Yeah, no. Well, I got the club too vertical on my backswing, and then I had to drop it down, and so I looped it a bit. And isn't that know, supposed to be a, just, a desirable move now? Well, it was a bit of the a swing, a little bit. I mean, I, funny, I saw David Ledbetter at Turnbury and the women. I was catting for Sue O in the Women's British Open just after he'd started. He was working with Lydia just after he'd started selling the ace wing. And I'd been to see, see David in the mid-'80s, and he said, your shaft's too vertical. You need to get more on plane. And he was right, I think. And I said, geez, David, I came to saw you 30 years ago, and you told me that vertical shaft was no good. Now you're teaching it. Right. He just, he just laughed. And, yeah. 
But anyway, it was... Um, the uh, A-swing didn't seem to stick around for too long. I think he's already ditched that, hasn't he? Well, I, I think he... I think it was a mistake to try it out on the best player in the world. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and, and I don't, ter- it, didn't, it didn't gain him a lot of followers or acolytes. I don't think it helped him sell yeah. any books. No, no, it disappeared. Pretty, pretty. And I, I mean, David Frost, who was a friend of mine, always said, he said, I'm sure Ledbetter tries stuff on me. And if it works, he... <laughs> And, and then if it works, he takes it to Feldo. I know, right. <clears throat> so, I mean, David was a terrific swinger and a good player. And, yeah, anyway. and, and, That's the well, he wasn't, he wasn't Faldo level, so he, was, uh, he could be a giddy pig. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll try it on you. And if it works with you, I'll take it to Nick. If it doesn't work, I'll, I won't bother. Anyway. Well, what's the longest um, that you ever played in, in, in tournament golf with just that beautiful mindset where you weren't thinking about your swing and you could just pull it back and fire it fl- at flags or drive it down the fairway, you know, and you knew where the ball was going to go. How long did that last at its best? I think, I think I was always thinking about, I always, I mean, I think everyone always has a swing thought. I don't think you ever, at least I didn't ever stood over the ball without a swing thought. There was always something that you had at the start of the week that you focused on. And those things would come and go, you know, Perhaps they might last a fortnight or even three weeks. But I remember Paul Azinger wrote something about, you know, he said, I first really understood how to play well on the tour. I kept trying to perfect my motion so that I didn't need to be constantly working on it and, and having it stressing about how it felt differently every day until Jack Nicholas said to me, Paul, he said, my, my game feel, feels different every day too. He said, you're no different from me. He said, and I made the assumption that Nicholas had this thing that, you know, was just a machine that worked perfectly every day, never to think about it. And he said, well, I'm no different from you. Yeah, so I think every golfer is constantly – I mean, I think your, your mechanics probably don't change very much, but I think your feels change and your thoughts change. And I think you've constantly got to be monitoring them and being aware of them and understanding what happens. And, you know, you inevitably go through times where you don't play as well. And, you know, that – was I think one thing Haney emphasised in the big miss with Tiger, that book about how Tiger's form fluctuated and there were times when he'd be swinging badly and playing terribly and, you know, I knew he had so much work to do to get ready for X, Y and Z major. When everyone assumed that Tiger just played great golf the whole time when, in fact, he struggled with the game like everyone else. I mean, obviously at a different level, but... That you know, having that knowledge that Nicholas and Woods struggle like that, I don't think that helps anybody because they still performed at you know historic yeah. levels, and that just reinforces that everybody else didn't have the mental game that they did. Well, it was because I think they were the greatest players of all time. They, they played the game, you know, as Hogan and Jones and Seve did. They played the game so well, and playing the game well is not the same as hitting the ball well. You know, the, the, the craziest. I mentor Sue O a little bit. I keep telling her, Sue, hitting the ball well is not playing well. Playing well is scoring well when you're hitting the ball badly. That's playing well. That's playing the game well. Hitting the ball well is not, you know, this, I played great and shot 75. No, you played shit. You might have hit the ball well. Right. But, but you didn't play well. You, in fact, you played badly. You, you know, so that's the mistake that I and most other, Tiger played the game so well because he could play you know, his C game, which was obviously the equivalent of a lot of guys' A game, but he could play his, what he would call his B minus or whatever and still get around in 67 and still win tournaments. And, you know, he, all those, you know, the 80-odd tournaments he's won, he 
can't tell me he played his best golf in all those 80 tournaments. Yeah, I mean, you almost have... get the feeling that he had, he almost takes more pride out of all the rounds that should have been yeah. 75s and he turned into 70s or 69s. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I mean, anyone can shoot 63 when everything's rolling and they're playing well and long putts are going in, you make a bunker shot and, you know, it's when you three-putt and hit in the trees and, you know, you hit bad shots and you and you can scrape out, you know, a great score, you know, an, an acceptable score that doesn't put you out of the tournament. That's that's playing golf well. That's why, you know, the best players won so many tournaments. But they're also, you yeah. know, people downplay how well they played. I mean, you know, I watch Seve play a lot and he was a great player. You know, he hit so many, you know, he was a beautiful player. And yeah, he would hit crooked drives every now and then, but wow, you, you know, he would leave you, every round I watched him play, there were five shots that were breathtaking that the field couldn't hit. Sandy Lowell maybe, but Feldo couldn't hit them, let alone me or, you know, any other of the mortal guys playing in Europe. But, you know, so and I'm sure Jack was the same and Tiger was the same and, you know, even Ernie and, you know, they, they do stuff that, that's why they're the best players. They, they're good stuff is Roger Federer, you know, that's why they're good. You mentioned Sandy Lyle, which is interesting because I think a lot of people who, I don't think he's really well known. His career's maybe not respected as much as it should be because, you know, he played mostly the European tour. We know he won a couple of majors, but tell, talk about Sandy Lyle a little bit to compare him and say he, he made, maybe was one of the few people that could hit sevy like shots. What was his game like? Well, he lost it quickly in the 1989, was it? He played well early in 89 on the West Coast and then went to Florida and struggled. And he missed the, he, when he, he won the Masters in 87, didn't he? Yeah. So, um, 88? 80, oh, because 87 was, was 87. Yeah. Yeah. And I think he missed the cut in 89. And he really never really played anywhere near his best golf after that. So he was an extraordinary player from, they used to have a film of the last round at Turnbury of the European Open where he shot 63, I think, where he just knocked the flag down every hole. And, you know, from sort of the late 70s through to, you know, for 10 years, he was a tremendous ball striker. I mean, solid, long and big high irons and a great driver and, you know, kind of a funky swing. But when it went, it went. But, you know, someone asked Seve if, um, you know, if you guys, as in the big, you know, the best six or seven, five or six players in Europe, Langerfeld, or was he, Seve Lowe, if you guys all played your best, who would win? And Seve kind of looked at this guy like it was an idiot and said, well, of course Sandy would win. You <laughs> don't agree with him, but, you know, that shows how much respect Sandy had for Seve's game and how much, of the, you know, obviously they were drawn a lot together and played a lot of golf together. And you know, when Sandy was playing well, he was a genius player and a great putter. And, but it was one of those swings that I think went, went, it went. And he really, you know, a friend of mine was catting for him in the early 90s and he said, you know, he was, he, he remembered him going across the creek at 13 at Augusta with a four iron or something and give me the seven iron and laid it up. You know, like this was a bread and butter shot for Sandy at his best and he put the seven iron out and laid it up short of the creek. He just couldn't just, do it. did it over. Yeah. So, you know, he was, you know, it's a, it's a mysterious game in that sense. It's littered with, you know, Ralph Gouldall and David Duval and back defence and Sandy and Paul Way, guys who – Lost it quickly, and where where did it go? Yeah, what happened? Yeah, did you say Chip Beck? Chip Beck, well, yeah, Chip yeah. Beck. You know, he was Jody Martin. I mean, Jody was a, you know, I think his 
Yeah, I know Mac O'Grady, but I think Jody's mistake was thanking Dean Beeman when he won the Players Championship, and that was the end of his relationship with Mac. And you know, Mac had, you know, I think was a great teacher. Is a great teacher, and he, you know, he transformed Jody Mudd's swing into one of the most efficient, powerful moves on the PGA Tour. And you know, when he thanked Dean Beeman in the speech for winning the Players Championship, that was the end of the relationship, and it was almost the end of Jody's career. But he was a beautiful player, you know, wow, powerful, and great, you know, a beautifully efficient, modern action, you know, the, the, the forerunner of all of the great techniques of the modern era. I mean, I mean, Mac was a big part of that evolution of the yeah. golf thing from, you know, the, the heroes of our era, you know, Nicholas and Miller and, you know, the quirky, you know, Ray Floyd, you know, LaBarba, Gabe Brewer, you know, all those very different swings of the era I grew up revering. Fuzzy. Fuzzy, Hubert Green. I mean, there's a list as long as Dave Stockton. As long as yeah. you know, Gary Player, as long as your arm. I mean, everyone recognisable. To, to now when, you know, I don't want to say everyone swings the same because they don't, but, you know, it's there are so many more orthodox, technically correct swings that are beautiful to watch. Adam Scott, you know, I guess, is the model and, you know, there's so much of you know, so much great technique, but you know, it goes back to what we were talking about before: is are they, you know are these guys better technicians, or are they better players? Or you know, I think you know Ray Floyd was a masterful player. You know, funky in a sense technique, but clearly great through the ball. Knew what he was doing. Great ball control. Incredible competitor. Great player. You know, but, but instantly recognizable swing that. You know, if you're talking to one of the institutes now as a 16-year-old, they would they'd be changing that in a minute. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, you know, your track man numbers aren't right, and you, you know we can increase your clubhead speed and hit the ball further, and your smash factor's not well. I assume Ray Ford's smash factor was pretty good, but you know, would would that swing or Jim Furyk swing get past the the institute coaches of today? Well, you know, probably not. Well, I mean, I. Yeah, your latest State of the Game podcast, Shackelford was talking about how maybe American colleges are recruiting a certain size of athlete now. You know, as as guy, uh, obviously a guy with a with a, a strange swing and who's smaller is just going to get passed over at the big schools. If that's true, then yeah, then that that era is is long gone. Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, I think if someone's a good enough player, where they. Uh, go to college or they travel over, over the world as funded amateurs or whatever. You know, if you're a good enough player, they'll get there in the end. Uh, in, my, in fact, I was talking to Sue O about it yesterday. You know, we were talking about you know, funding and institutes and the way you know, she obviously had the benefit of playing overseas and being able to tournaments. I said, you know, Seve, the only tournament Seve Ballesteros ever played was the Padrania Caddy Championship. When he went on the tour and went to the pre-qualifying in the 1974 Portuguese Open at the end of the night was as a 17-year-old. Mm-hmm. That was that was one of his first competitive rounds. Was that the Was that the round where he was upset in the locker room crying? <laughs> no, no, that was a tournament in San Cugat, okay, which is a dreadful golf course. A friend of mine took me to. I couldn't believe how bad a golf course. It was a you know a bit, bit of famous course in Spain, of course in Barcelona, but. Um, no, but I think Seve shot a lot. Maybe he didn't break 90, but within two years, he had all but won the Open Championship you know, and was one of the best players in the world. As a 19-year-old, he was you know, clearly one of the 
clearly the most electrifying talent of your generation and, and you know, certainly by 1978, one of the best players in the world. That era that you played on the European tour from, what, 81 or 82 until the mid-90s, I mean, that has to be probably the European tour's greatest period in time. Well, I think so. I mean, as, as I think that, you know, perhaps it was because of it was the era I grew up as a kid revering, but, you know, was the 70s the, the great era of American golf? You know, Trevino, Palmer, Nicholas Weisskopf, mm-hmm. Miller. I mean, they were Watson, Floyd. They were my heroes. But uh, yeah, Europe, Europe in the eighties went. You know what Seve did to that tour in terms of well, he brought it to life. I mean, you know, it was a moribund tour dominated by, and this is the wrong word, but you know, dull Englishmen like Neil Coles and Bernard Hunt and Bernard Gallagher and you know, tremendous players. And Bernard, Bernard, Neil Coles was one of the most underrated players of all time. I mean, he didn't fly. He, he was on that terrible flight, Ryder Cup flight, going into Palm Springs in 955 where, you know, they barely landed the plane. It was a terrible storm and that was the, almost the end of Neil Cole's I mean, he knocked back interviews, for, um, invitations for the US Masters every year. He just didn't, he wouldn't, want, he wouldn't fly there. I mean, Neil <laughs> Cole's but, you know, I mean, Jacqueline did a lot to bring that tour to life in the 70s, but, now, that was in England. I mean, Jackson didn't bring the game to life on the continent, but Seve brought the game to life on the continent. And, you know, he, he, you know, he would play in, in Sweden and Holland and you know, places that had no, no golf followings and there'd be big crowds you know, out watching him play golf because you know, he was the – and, of course, he dragged, you know, Feldo and Wisdom and, you know, he dragged those guys along with him and, and they were – you know, whether he, and I'm sure they, he gave them confidence, I think, to believe that they could go to America and win the Masters and, and be world-class players. And if it wasn't for Seve, who knows what would have happened. But, you know, it was, it was a great era of golf. And we played, you know, I suspect we played much better and older golf courses in, 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 the, in the 80s than, than we did. By the time I'd finished the tour in you know, the mid-90s, that we were, you know, there, there was a good commercial reason to go to a bad golf course nearly every week. So we did, and we played for more money. And it took me a long time to realize that for many guys playing the tour, <clears throat> I was naive enough and romantic enough to think that, you know, I loved playing great golf because I'd grown up watching tournament golf on great courses in Melbourne. That, you know, a big part of the tour was the opportunity to play the great golf courses around the world. And not a long argument, a short argument with someone, I don't remember who it was. About you know, I'd much rather play at Port Marnock in the Irish Open for three hundred thousand pounds than go to you know a, a nondescript course that was could, could because they weren't charging or they were actually paying down the tournament. The prize money went to four hundred thousand pounds. This guy thought I was complete lunatic. You know, for the same skill and effort, why would you why would you accept a check for three or four thousand pounds when it could be five or six just for playing at a different golf course? Of course, he was probably right, and I was probably wrong. Did you play? Did you feel like you played better on better golf courses, what we would consider better golf courses now? Uh, well, probably, but I certainly enjoyed it more. I felt there was more of a point to the tournament, and I felt that you know I disliked intensely playing poor golf courses. But there were many guys on the tour who who just saw professional golf purely as a job, a way to make money, and the more money they played for, the better. And they, they, could, they would have 
you know, the old line about they'd have played down the freeway for, for you know, a million pounds was exactly, they didn't care where they played. It seems like you know, but, professional golf probably hasn't changed that much in that regard. Well, no, it's always about, you know, the venues, the, you know, you know it's, not, it's not the last thing in terms of where the game goes, but it's, you know, it's not seen as, you know, an incredibly important part of the makeup of the tours if you're going to great golf courses. I mean, it's sold as, you know, all the tours around the world are sold as, you know, traveling to the great courses, but, you know, the reality is they, they don't. And you know, the sadness is partly is that, you know, certainly not in Australia because in Australia all of the best courses want big tournaments. They're, you know, they're desperate to get big tournaments. But in Britain and America it's not, you know, part of the raison d'etre of, you know, famous clubs to attract professional golf. You know, so many of them are not interested in that. Yeah, and maybe so, a few too many are. <laughs> be, and, and then they have to make accommodations to do, to host a tournament. Well, yeah. yeah you, be, I mean, my, you could make an argument that it'd be a lot better if, if none of the great golf courses had any interest in hosting a professional event. Well, yeah. You know, the poster chop. Well, you know, I think Marion's a, one of the great courses in the world. But I compare it to its Australian cousin, Kingston Heath, a, you know, a great bit of architecture on a small piece of land. And I look at Kingston Heath where the essence of that golf course is short grass everywhere. You know, there's, there's almost no rough. And I wonder what Merriam would look like with, you know, set up the same way with no long grass or short grass. And sure, it perhaps would be seen as not being capable of defending itself against the best players at the US Open, but would it be a more elegant, more interesting, more fun, better golf course to play if it followed the model of Kingston Heath? I mean, it's not for me to say. I'm not a member there. And, you know, we don't. But, mm-hmm. you know, it always struck me that, you know, if it wasn't for the fact that it seems like it's constantly having to prove itself as a venue worthy of holding the US Open, then it could be an even better golf course than it is. And it's, you know, it's one of the, you know, it's one of the, best 10 courses in the world. And of course, I'd always been, I'd always seen photos of Marion that never looked to be that remarkable. In fact, I'd, I'd never seen a remarkable photograph or, or a photograph that suggested how great it was. And the first time I saw it, I was in awe of, you know, I, I played it with my partner in our original design business, Bruce Granton. By the time we got to the fifth hole, we were both like, this is one of the greatest places, you know, we'd ever seen. You what know, struck what struck that. you the most about Marion? Well, just how great the holes were. You know, and this was before we got to the end of the meat of the golf course, right. really. Or the end of it. But, you know, great topography, great design, beautiful feel. You know, all the things that make for, you know, the things that you golf can't describe or, or put on a checklist. Yeah, you, you know, that makes that course endlessly fascinating to play. I mean, I've played... I first played Kingston Heath when I was alive. I watched Gary Player play there in the 1970 Australian Open. And, you know, it's funny. I, he was playing with Frank Phillips, who was a great Australian player, two-time Australian Open champion. And I was in awe of how they played in front of so many people. And I watched Frank Phillips, who was a notoriously poor putter, four-putt the second green. I was like, like how was a pro four-putt? And the irony was about the pin was cut in the back left corner 
And the irony was the last year we actually changed that back left corner of that green to make it not so steep because, it, you know, as, as the greens had gotten quicker over the years, it had become a place where it was severe when Frank four-putted it. But, you know, 1970, so almost 50 years later, we actually got to adjust that slope to make it not so <laughs> severe. But, but my point is that, you know, I'd watched golf on that course in 1970, first played it, I think, a year later, and I'm still, you know, I still love going to play that golf course. I mean, it's still, you know, one of the few places in the world where it doesn't matter how time, how many times you go there, it's still a thrill to play it and to look at it and to study it. And, you know, it's not, it's not true for me to say that every time I go there, I discover something new because, you know, if you've played a course for 50 years and been the architects there for 20, you don't discover too many things that are new. But, <clears throat> but, you know, it's always a yeah. That doesn't mean your appreciation for it cannot continue to expand. No, no, you know, you never. You, I never go there and feel bored playing there, or you know, it's never just a run-of-the-mill game or something you take for granted. Or you know, and and, and Marion's a golf course like that. You know, Sunningdale is, Woking is, Moorfontaine. You know, the great courses in the world are all like that because they've got that elegance and purity and simplicity and you know great design and you know they're always asking interesting questions and and, and the holes are you know you, you never really know how to play them you know the greatness of a little hole like the 15th victoria peter thompson's club and jeff ogilvy's club is that you know the 15th hole of victoria is a 300 yard drivable par four that i never really know how to play it and, you know, it depends on the wind or where the pin is or how you're feeling or whether you're in a tournament or a practice round or, you know, it's not a physically striking hole, but it asks questions that, you know, you're constantly asking yourself, what's the right shot today? You know, what, what am I prepared to take on? And, you know, Jeff Ogilvy talks about it where you start off with a, five iron when you're a kid or a six iron and you avoid the bunkers and you, know, you take a four and a three and you, and you kind of get away with it and you take a two iron and you hook it in the bunkers and you go back to a five iron and <clears throat> you know, one day you get confident and you, when you're long enough and you drive it on the green and the next day you hook it in the bunker, 30 yards short of the green and make a five and you're back to you know hitting a four iron again. and Right. It's a whole that, you know, the genius is that you're constantly off balance. I think that's the hardest thing for somebody maybe who isn't of the skill level or that has the the the, dis, the thought discipline to play a hole like like you and, and Jeff Ogilvy do is to to not pull driver. I know when I play a short par four, and I, I don't like to use the word drivable par four because you know <laughs> what what's a drivable par four for most people? You know, it'd be yeah. it'd be a two hundred thirty yeah. yard hole, but but a, a short par four where it tempts you into thinking that you can get on or near the green. It's it's the hardest thing in in the course of a round to check down and to hit an iron or a hybrid or something for position off the tee because you feel like you're you don't know when you're going to come back, you don't know when you're going to play golf again, and you're like, am I here to to you know, go balls out and go for it, or am I going to you know try to plot my way around the course? What am I doing here? I just think for an amateur, especially you know like somebody like me, that's 
it's just hard not to pull driver. I do it all the time. I, you know, I check mm-hmm. down, but it's just, it's so mentally, it, it causes mental anguish to, to not give yourself a chance to go for it. Or, you know, do you care about what score you're shooting? This was an argument I had with Scott Fawcett, I'm not sure, on Twitter, which I'm going to avoid in the future. But right. you know, the argument about, um, you know, his, his argument was everyone always cares about scoring and kind of shocked me because most golf I play, I don't care what I score. And it shocked him that I would play golf without caring what I scored. Like, I go and play golf, you know, a lot of nights. I'll go out after work and play five or six or seven or eight or nine holes, and I have no interest in what I score. I've got plenty of interest in making good swings and hitting good shots and trying to get up and down out of the bunker and trying to make the right decisions, but I'm not beating myself up if I, you know, bogey the first three holes. I don't care. You know, I'm well over beating myself up if I'm three over after three or, you know, I've, I'm long past you know, worrying about what I scored because I, you know, VJ Singh and I, and I think Peter Fowler led the, the world rankings for for years of number of tournaments played over the three year cycle. So you know, having played well, I think that year, I think you years, just answered years. what I was going to ask you. I mean, I I wonder if I was going to say I wonder if that goes back to the fact that you you were a professional player. I mean, you played on the tour. You know, you're. You've done that. You've been there and done that, and played for scores, and played for money, and played for high stakes so much. Then that makes it a lot, a little bit easier for you not to care about it now. Like you're based, you know, you're in retirement, so to speak. Where you know the recreational player, the guy who plays once a week, twice a week, once a month, they're gonna, they want to get out there and they want to test themselves. I mean, that's it's it's the uh, 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 not it's an infrequent opportunity to test themselves against their last round or to test out what they've been working on. They want to see if they can get from 90 to 89 or 89 to 86. So, I mean, I kind of fall, I kind of fall in between. I, I've played rounds where I just, I'm, I'm able to go out and just bump shots around, but only if it's an interesting course. And if it's just an average course, I'm going to go out there and see what score I can shoot. So I think it depends on, on like where you are in your life and where you are in your game, whether you're capable of playing a, a, a round of golf where you, where you don't care about what you're shooting. Yeah. I mean, I suppose the ultimate uh, example of that is the old course where, you know, so many people I assume go to that course and it's their bucket list course. It's the greatest course in the world, the most interesting probably. And they might, have one chance to play there in their life. They get in the ballot and they play there and they're going to go and score there. Yeah. Here's a golf course that unless you've walked it at least once, there is no point scoring. You don't know where you're going. You don't understand the golf course. You don't understand the nuance. You don't know where to aim or what shots to hit. You know, the first, your first game there is a reconnaissance mission to discover, you know, the first layer of that golf course of an, of an onion with, you know, multiple layers. So why would you go and score there? But I, but I get, here's my one day to play St. Andrews. This is my one game here. I'm going to see what I shoot. And there have been millions of golfers all over the world who've gone to that golf course and done the same thing. But yeah, and, me, and maybe 900,000 who've walked off saying this course sucks. I don't get it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> if you just go there and, you know, hit, hit a, I mean, it's difficult in the middle of the day to start hitting three or four balls, but you know, for me to be, you know, trying to hit a couple of shots into the greens every now and then and try, you know, if you get short of the sixth green to 
you know, try and fly one at the flag from 120 yards and pull out a six nine and try and run along the ground and go and putt those greens and chuck a couple of balls in the bunkers and chip around the greens and, you know, hit as many shots as you can. And, you know, if, if it's your one chance to play that golf course, don't waste it by playing one ball and trying to post a score, but go and discover as much of that golf course as you can by hitting as many shots as you can. Go and putt those greens and take your ball to the back of the fifth green and putt that 90-yard putt down to the front and, you know, chuck a couple of balls in the road hole bunker and throw a ball in strat bunker and putt across the 11th green and, you know, hit a couple of tee shots off 12 and, you know, go, go one way to the right and, you know, try and drive one through the bunkers and, you know, try all those shots. And, you know, to me, as I said, you know, just going there once and playing one, playing one ball and, you know, unless you want to go out after your round, which is the most beautiful thing in the game to do after you've played late on a summer's night is to go and walk that golf course. I remember one of the coolest things we ever did, we were playing the Scottish Senior Open up the road at the Fairmont Resort. Peter Fowler, Simon Owen and I were rooming together and we had dinner and said, Simon, take us down and walk us through what happened in the 1978 Open with Jack. <clears throat> so. Simon was playing with Nicholas in the 78 Open and he chipped in to go one ahead on that. I was watching it on TV in Australia. And here's a bloke I knew a little bit and you know, he chips in on the 15th hole to go one ahead of Nicholas with three to go in the Open at St Andrews. And this is the Cinderella story. You know, and he said, we walked under the 16th tee. We were back on the tee. And he said, we walked under the tee and Jack just gave me the, the hardest coldest blue-eyed stare you can imagine like kid are you good enough to beat me from here to the end <laughs> and he took that you know he, he said i took, pulled my driver out and i smashed it way down there past the bunkers and a little wedge into the green and he played it safe with the three wood short of the bunkers and you know he hit a beautiful nine on in there or about eight foot and i was full of adrenaline i was so you know i, cl- I clearly couldn't handle the position I put myself in, I hit it over the green and made a bogey and Jack made a, you know, just a Henry Longhurst cast iron par at the 72 putting across that green from, you know, a long way and I bogeyed it and the tournament was over. But just to, you know, to walk around those holes and have someone who lives such a historic moment in the game to tell you how it all played out was, you know, it's one of the, you know, it's a thrill to, so, so, you know, I was incredibly lucky to do that. But, but just to go out on that golf course and walk around there at nine o'clock on a night on a summer's night without your clubs is something that you know to me that's that's almost more fun than getting in the ballot and teeing off at twelve o'clock and playing off the front tees in a six hour round, you know hitting one ball and scoring and completely you know missing the you know the not missing the point of it, but I think you miss the essence of that golf course, which is something you can get. If you just go and walk it, and you know, and you can walk that course in, you know, ten hours, you could take to walk that golf course with a with a club in your hand, just not a ball, just walk around it with a club, and on Sunday when it's shut, and take practice swings, and just you know, get a sense of how great that place is, and what it stands for, and what it means, and all the all the all the stuff that's happened there over the years. And yeah. Hogan didn't go there, and, but everyone else did. And, 
Yeah, it's an incredible can you, think place. Of a, can you think of another golf course in the world that would be that rewarding to just to do what you just ex, you know, described? Well, no, because you know the national golf links. You don't start in the town and finish in the town, and you know you can blow off that eighteen pole in the old course is a not particularly great hole, but it's the greatest place to finish around ever. You know, you think about everything that's happened there, but you you come back into the town. The essence of golf in Scotland was that, you know, you started by the railway station or the railway line or, you know, in the town and you played out along the shore on that, on that rumpled land. And then you come back, you know, and coming back into the town is, so where in America can you do that? Pebble Beach, perhaps you you know, but not really. But you know, but I, but clearly, you know, if you walk Cypress Point or Sand Hills or the National, you know, those revered you know chapels of great golf in America, you, you get something close to the experience you have at St Andrews. But St Andrews is the is is the one place you get it, and I, and I think it's you know it's. Yeah, it's just North Berwick. No, you know, it's coming back into the town. It's, it's it's what it's how golf started out and why it was, you know, such a democratic game that everybody played. And, you know, Jeff talks about going to North Berwick and you know when you go to the pub at night, you know, and everyone's in there talking about, that. and everyone knows that, you know, when you you know the Redan was difficult because the wind was into you off the left, and everyone knows that, and you know, everyone understands how the golf course is playing that day and they're talking about it and they, you know, it's such an amazing culture of golf over there. Yeah. It's, it's hard to imagine. You know, I think it's, I think it has to do with the aspects like North, North Berwick and, and St. Andrews. It, it, it's the whole, it's the course is right there. It's everything's in front of you. If you, if you turn left, you see another hole. If you turn right, you see another hole. If you can look forward behind you, you're, there's a connectivity to the entire golf course at any point on it that you definitely wouldn't get it at Sand Hills or <laughs> you might get it at Cypress yeah, Point a little bit, but, uh, but yeah. you just, you know, the, the visibility and it combined with the history and the location is, is not something that you can replicate any, anywhere in America. Probably you're right. Well, well, they're jammed onto, you know, by necessity on such small, tight pockets of land. I mean, Presswick is, you know, they only had so much space to before they ran into the into the farmland to to fit these things. So they were, you know, they had crossover holes and they were close together and common fairways and all that, you know, blind shots and all that funky stuff that, you know, people who don't want quirk don't like. But you know, that they were forced into that by the nature of the sites they had. And I understood it, and and I understood that, you know, before there were rules about golf design, that those things weren't that important necessarily. And so, you know, to, you know, as, as Doug says, you, you know, and I think you and David Kibb were talking about it last week. You know, everything you need to know about golf in Scotland, because it is you know, all the, you know, for every. Um, rule of golf course design and great design there's a, there's a great hole or a great course in scotland that blows it up you know and, and refutes it and you know so, so you know the lessons are endless you can learn about golf over there mm-hmm. 
that was like Jeff's piece that uh, Jeff Ogilvy's piece that he, he I read online recently. He wrote for I think for one of your magazines that I think the, his Scotland trip that he went on. And oh, he was yeah. talking about Ely, like the first yeah. hole. It just goes like straight up a, a hill. You don't you don't see anything, but that's what they had to yeah. work with, and they just yeah. they made a golf hole that's out it. of it. Yeah, you know, and there'd be people that go there and didn't understand its significance or its historic importance. And well, it's a stupid shot. The first, you said, you know, it's ridiculous, but you know, it is what it is, and it's good to, you know, it's a great thing to hark back and think about what the game was when it started, you know, and how, you know, there was a time when, and I think we're getting away from it, that, you know, predictability and fairness became, you know, catchwords for what was good. You know, you we we bit every piece of quirk out of golf, you know, and, and everyone was was scared to build it. You know, I think we're less like that now. You know, I think we've people that you know are happy to build you know stuff that's quirky and different. And you know, again, as you and David were talking about, you know, you want to build stuff that's controversial. If you're just building stuff that's bland, then you know what does it stand for? You know, it's, it's the same with, you know, people think I'm polarizing and controversial. But, you know, if you don't have an opinion, you, you don't ever get anywhere. You know, at some point, someone's going to stand up and stick their stake in the ground. Here's what we stand for. And, you know, if you've got to bang some doors down to do it, you're not going to do it if, you, if you're not somewhat polarizing and somewhat controversial. No, you're right. Yeah. Like you just said, you have to stand for something. You have to have a point of view. Um, yeah, otherwise... Yeah nothing changes and you know i think golf definitely golf design golf courses needed to change there was a there was a desperate need to get out of the model that we were in for so many years and thankfully we have i think what we have discovered is there are just enough people who love golf i think the way that you and i love golf that can support the reintroduction of scottish principles old old landscapes and just enough quirk there's just enough people that will go out of their way and pay for that that it's it's allowed that element of golf design to come back into the field and it had been eliminated for probably 50 years 40 years before that yeah i appreciate that quirk the, the 16th hole at bambugle Dunes is a you know it's a throwback a little to the sitwell park green and you either think it's the coolest funnest greatest one of the greatest greens in golf or do you think it's completely ridiculous you know you know we could have built a blandish green and it would have been a decent hole because it's a pretty sight and a bit of two on a three on par three and you know it would have been you know memorable-ish but it wouldn't have been one of the most memorable greens in australia and and it's memorable because it is polarizing and some people do hate it and some people do think it's ridiculous but you know, I've seen groups go through that hole and spend half an hour after they're finished putting on that green, just fooling around. It's bizarre to think that, you know, that famous green at Sitwell Park, that the, the members blew it up. And right. Re- you know, if, if that green was still there, you know, there's a course that almost no one visits. If that green was still there, every single design crazed person in the game would have made a pilgrimage just to see it. I mean, for, if nothing else, it was a marketing disaster to mm-hmm. blow it up. You know, and even if it was crazy and ridiculous, you know, it was it was just a, 
you know, this is, you know, golf needs that stuff. And, and you're right, you know, I think the, I mean, it's been spoken about endlessly about, you know, the evolution of the game and you know, with Sandhills on, onwards that how much it's got, you know, it's reverted back to where it needed to go, where, you know, people are building golf courses again. You know, it's not about, it's gone away from, you know, selling houses and, you know, people talk about you know, the failure of golf and, you know, the, the closing of golf courses. And, well, how many of the, the golf courses are closing are just failed real estate developments? You know, I most. suspect most of them are. Yeah. Yeah, you know. Or, you know, in Melbourne where we've just rebuilt Peninsula where it was the first merger of a golf club in Australia. They merged with Kingswood, which is a club just down the road from Kingston Heath. And through some different circumstances, the course had it changed a lot, largely through problems with neighbours complaining about balls going into, into that neighbouring houses. And the golf course had to change a lot, and it had changed to its detriment. And it, it was the 12th or 13th best course within a, you know, literally a 15-minute drive of Royal Melbourne. So if you're the 12th or 13th best restaurant in a street full of pretty nice restaurants, one of them the best restaurant in the world, and Royal Melbourne, and another one, Kingston Heath, one of the best 20, one of the best 20 restaurants in the world, all at, a, all at an affordable price and a comparable price, then you're probably not going to do that well in an era when fewer people are joining golf clubs. So, you know, but anyway, they, they merged with Peninsula and, you know, we got to rebuild Peninsula and, and, and make that a much better golf course. So, so the closing of one course, whilst sad on the level of always sad that a historic club closes, and, but ultimately it makes Melbourne a much better city for golf because it allowed the financing of the rebuilding of what was a pretty good 36-hour golf course, but it's a much better golf course now. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, so, so close, the closing of golf courses doesn't need to be a – it can be sad, but it doesn't need to be a bad thing. And, you know, again, I think you and David were talking about it. The, the future is perhaps not in rebuilding – sorry, in building new courses, but rebuilding – old courses and making better golf. And, you know, we've done a lot of that in Australia in the last 25 years. And I think we've made, you know, without trying to sound egotistical, I think, we, you know, we've changed the face of, you know, top-level golf in Australia because we've, we've made so many of the best clubs in Australia. We've made the courses those members play over better golf courses than they were. And, and I think that's, you know, the long-term future of the game is, you know, I think in part it's about making better golf courses. It's about providing, you know, that 15th hole of Victoria dilemma of having members come there every week and, you know, what do I do today? How do I play this hole? And, you know, trying to hedge it closer to the green to, to try and shoot a lower score. You know, going back to what we were talking about, you know, the reality is that 95% of people who play care about what they score. So so the greatness of a, an easy and in inverted commas hole like the 15th of Victoria, really, a, you know, it's a, for a 20 handicapper, it's a six iron, eight iron hole. So it couldn't turn into a not difficult green to hit is that you know, if they are scoring, 
that's when it's really asking its most interesting question because you can make six. If you, if you just hook it a bit in the bunkers and you're a 15 mark and, you, and you're in the bunker with a 90-yard bunker shot, you're probably going to struggle to make a five. You might make a six or a seven. Now, you duff one and blade one over the back and you've made a seven or a six at least. So, so you know, the greatness of those holes is the easy holes are often the ones that disrupt your scoring the most if, if they're great designs. So, so building, you know, in Australia, I think there are probably more great per course, per capita course numbers in the world, more great sub 300 yard holes than anywhere in the world in, in Australia. From, because Mackenzie came and built the 10th at Royal Melbourne, the third at Royal Adelaide, and the third at Kingston Heath, and showed us what the essence of a great short par four was. Here's how you ask. Enduringly confounding questions, but he could only build those because he understood what made the twelfth on the old course a great hole, or the tenth on the old course a great hole, because he understood that every time you played the twelfth on the old course, the wind or the or the pin or the tee or the match or the tournament or offered the chance to ask a a different question. You know, I saw in the two thousand and fifteen Open there. Danny Willett hit a punch five iron second shot into that green. Now, there's a hole that when the wind Mm. goes just a little bit the other way, you know, they're all driving on there. You know, there there are cross bunkers and it's a, you know, that hole can change character as more than any other hole of its length and type in the game. So, you know, Mackenzie understood how to replicate that, that challenge and those questions. And he came to Australia and he showed us what a great, short par four was and we you know those of us who work now if you study those holes long enough you'll figure out how to ask the same questions and you know i think that well, i've never played much in south africa but a few times but you know i suspect the one reason we have you know better golf courses than they do in south africa is that mackenzie came here you know showed us what great golf was he wrote his book Alec Russell and Mick Morecambe, the greenkeeper at Royal Melbourne, read his book. He came out. He spoke to them. He explained what he wanted. You know, they clearly got what he was on about, and he left. And they built his plans, and you know, they influenced a, a whole group of courses that you know make make the what's at the heart of great golf in Australia. And, and South Africa never had that one guy who went down there and said, here's how you do it. Right. Okay, we're going to break this up really quickly at this point with a PSA, a personal service announcement. Thanks to all of you who have left feedback on iTunes and given a star rating. I appreciate that. If you haven't done that yet, please do it. Just a couple of clicks, search Feed the Ball, give it a star rating, one, two, three, four, five. Maybe leave a comment. I appreciate that. That helps me out quite a bit. It lets me know that you're out there and that you care, and it keeps me motivated to keep going. If you're on Twitter and you see me post a new episode, like it, maybe retweet it, give it a bump or a comment. That would help as well. And now that we're done with this quick reminder, as I promised, let's get back to Mike Clayton. Speaking of great golf courses, you mentioned Barnboogle. You tell a great story in your new book, Preferred Lies, about maybe the first time you went down there and you went down there with Bruce Hepner and, and a couple other people and uh, a young guy, Ramsey, was showing you around. And hmm. Bruce left and said, 
you know, I, I've seen this a hundred times, nothing will ever come of this. And it didn't work out that way. It did, it, it did happen and Barn Bugle was built. Tell me, how did, how did that, how did you involved, how did you become involved in that? And how did you meet Tom Doak for the first time? And what was your working relationship like? Well, we met, we met Tom. Tom was a, Tom had been helped when he first came to Australia by a guy called Tom Ramsey, who was Murdoch's golf writer. He, he went to, every major for 40 years writing right, for yeah. Rupert Murdoch's papers. He wrote that book so, that we were talking about. Yeah, he did. And when Tom came to Australia, someone set him up with so, – sorry, when Tom Doak came to Australia, someone set him up with Tom Ramsey and Ramsey sent him, told him where to go and set up the visits and he might have stayed with him. He certainly stayed with Richie Benno, who was the famous – not the American so much, but the famous and legendary Australian cricketer who was a golf nut. So um, – we were invited to pitch separately for the job of building the two new courses at the National. And Bruce Grant, my partner, was the superintendent at the National. And the captain there said, if you guys can get together with Tom, you'll get one of the courses. So I got in touch with Tom. I said, well, here's the situation. He got in touch with Ramsey. He didn't know us from a bar. So really... He got in touch with Tom and Tom Ramsey and Tom vouched for our competence and Tom came out and said, okay, let's pitch for this together. With Ian Baker Finch. And in the end, we didn't get the job because Greg stuck his hat in the ring and Greg got the job uh, and Peter Thompson got the other course. Anyway, when Van Bugle came up, I don't real, remember exactly. Real quick, Mike, real quick. So which one of those courses at the National are they rebuilding now? Not the Moon, it's the Ocean course? They're rebuilding the Ocean course, yeah. And that was, is, the, that was the Norman. No, that, that was the Thompson. That was the Thompson because, yeah, Norman and Bob Harrison did the moon, of course. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so I think that'll be it. Anyway, anyway so, so Ramsey knew of our association. He contacted us. Tom and I caught up. We agreed to do it together. Um, the original model put forward by Greg, which was to fund it through uh, kind of a membership-based model, raised, raised $300,000. Um, Tom got... Mike Kaiser to come and have a look at it. Kaiser said that model's no good. Make it a public course. He took Richard to Bandon, introduced Richard to the guy who ran the business at Bandon. He said, "This is Richard Tatler from Bumbergle Dunes. He's here for seven days. You've got you've got seven days to teach Richard everything I know about this business and everything you know about this <laughs> business." So, so Richard was there for seven days. Uh, Mike didn't underwrote it financially, but he underwrote it emotionally, uh, told Richard how to do it, make it a public course, go ahead and build it, you'll be fine, it'll work. And no one else thought it would. I thought it would. Um, I remember Bruce Grant coming back from building bunkers down there and he came back, he'd been sandblasted for a week and you know, the, wind was, the wind was howling and he said, no one's ever going to go there and play golf, ever. It's the middle of nowhere, it blows a hurricane, it's never going to work. I said, you'll be surprised, Bruce. It's going to be really – it'll work. Tom was bearish about it. You know, Mike was – he'd seen it work in America. He knew how good the land was. I thought it would work. Richard took a punt. And it was successful pretty much from day one because it was, it was great golf. It looked over the ocean. It was everything that makes Bandon and Sand Valley and Cabot Links and, you know, Doorknock and Cypress Point, places that people want to go and play golf. So 
And that was, and Tom and I was, you know, it was, it was largely Tom's, it was largely Tom's routing, although his original routing went away. The, the back, the back nine holes went away down the beach and they finished inland on, on what are now the 11th and 10th holes. Right. And Mike came out and said, no, no, you've got to finish coming down the beach. So the rounding got flipped and 17 and 18 come down with the beach on the right as opposed to essentially, well, they weren't t- technically 10 or 11 flipped, but, you know, the original 10th hole went up along the beach with the beach on the left. But, and it was, a, it was an amazing hole. It would have been one of the best holes in Australia, I think. But, you know, it was one of those cases where, well, let's sacrifice this for the greater good. But, you know, the 10th hole at Bamboogle reverses the 18th would have been one of the most photographed and, and one of the best holes in Australia, mm. without question. But it, it finished up as the 18th in reverse, you know, or reversed as the 18th. So, you know, it, um, it was a great collaboration. Yeah. You know? And Tom was, you know, Tom was, you know, it was, it was certainly, you know, people have speculated how much we had to do with it, but Tom was never you know, about who did what. You know, this is where we're partners in this. It's not about who, who does what. We get paid the same. We get the same credit. And uh, he was terrific to work with. You know, we, we learned a lot. He was great to work with. You know, I think it was, you know, unquestionably it was a good thing for his career. You know, following on from Pacific Dunes, it, it was the next. Well, I, no, I think that visit, the initial visit with Bruce Hepner was, with John Sloan, my partner, when we drove out on the, on the sandy track and when Bruce said, I, I could take you within 50 yards on that road where he said that. He said, I've met that kid a thousand times. I've heard that speech a thousand. I'll make you, I've heard that I'll make you famous speech a hundred times. <laughs> Mark my words, that'll never happen. Bruce had flown over from building Cape Kidnappers with Tom. So Pacific Dunes had opened, Kidnappers opened, Van Bugle opened and, and Tom was a smash hit. You know, he was the big new star on the stage but, you know, so, so it was a yeah, it was it was a fun thing to be a part of and, no, so you know, that for was me, the, yeah you had just kind of gotten getting into the architectural field right then I, is it safe to assume that that was your first experience ever working on it on such an, a remarkable property with so many routing options and, and so much material and and beauty to work with yeah and likely it might be the only chance we get to Hopefully not. The only chance to get to work on a site as good as that. There's a piece of land in Hobart, two two and a half hours drive south of Hobart's the biggest city in Tasmania. Mm -hmm. There's a piece of land in Hobart where Matt Goggin's involved, where I think it's a a better site than Barbugle and a much more commercially viable site. You know, it's five minutes from Hobart Airport and Hobart's the, you know, it's it's the fifth or sixth Biggest, it's a smallest capital city, but you know it's a decent sized city in Australia. So you know, hopefully we get to work on that side. But but yeah, Barnbugle is quite possibly the best bit of land we ever get to work on because it was a great world class site. You know, so so of course it was you know it was an amazing opportunity to, to build, just to be involved, you know, in, in something that's you know a significantly successful business. And the great thing, for, you know, the most important thing from my point of view was it worked for Richard. You know, Richard was the guy who, he was a, you know, he calls himself a dumb spud farmer, but, you know, he's a 
pretty successful potato and beef cattle grower. And, you know, the great thing for me, I mean, we could have been, Mike Kaiser, Tom Doke and I could have been the greatest bunch of con men ever, you know, but he trusted us. You know, and I think, you know, I told the story in the book about it was about our second or third meeting. So he knew me a bit, but not that well. And, and I went down there with a, with a design contract. And he flipped, you know, he looked at the half read the first page and turned it over and flipped over a couple of, he said, do you trust me? I said, sure. I said, well, I trust you guys. So there won't be any need for this. And he screwed it up and threw it in the bin. You know, so <laughs> you know, nothing was ever signed. Um, so for me, one of the thrills of that project was that Richard, one, didn't lose money. Well, one, didn't do his shirt. Two, didn't lose money. The three, the golf course lived. Four, he came through the second golf course. And five, it's an, five, it's an incredibly successful business. And six, it's the first time ever in Australia that anyone, any golfer in Australia can go and play two top 50 courses in the world. I mean, you can do that. Anyone in Scotland, in Britain can go and play Turnbury or St Andrews or Preswick or well, perhaps not Preswick, but, you know, anyone can go and play Pebble Beach or Pinehurst or Beth Plage or the great, but no one in Australia, no, you know, you can play Royal Melbourne if you're new a member or, you know, you might get on there once in your life, but, you know, there wasn't a golf course, there wasn't a public golf course in Australia remotely close to being in the top 100 in the world. So, you know, there are six reasons why, you know, far and above, you know, the thrill and the recognition we got out of building it, why it's such an important course, an iconic course in Australia. That, and it's 75 US dollars around. I mean, it's, you know, in terms of what you get for what you pay, it's, it's the best value golf in the world, really. Right. You know, 100 Australian dollars to play, you know, and, and I think, 36 holes, I don't know what he charges for 36 holes. One game at Lost Farm and one at Bamboogle, but it's certainly not $200. It might be 150 Australian dollars to play two top 50 courses in the world. What's up, you know? And Rich has never been greedy enough and he's smart enough to understand that, you know, that pricing of that business is not about the green fee he charges. You know, the, the success of that business is the thrill people have in going there checking into their room, going to the golf, going to the clubhouse to have lunch, either of the club, there are two clubhouses there, you know, going out to play the golf course for the first time, going to the bar after you finish, having a drink, going to your room, having a shower, getting changed, going for dinner, you know, having a little much to drink perhaps, going to bed and waking up and doing it all again. Mm -hmm. Those courses work because of the combined experience of all those things make it something that you don't get anywhere in Australia. You know, there are good public courses that people drive to and they play and they have a couple of drinks in the bar and they go home again. Well, it's a great experience, but it's not the same experience as that one, two, three or four day experience of staying, arriving, making the effort, arriving, staying, eating, playing, eating, drinking, sleeping, doing it all again and, yeah, you know, and it takes it takes an effort to do that, as it takes some effort to go to Dornock or Sandhills or Pinehurst or whatever. You know, great golf always takes an effort to get to, 
that's why it's you know the promise of going back to where we started the promise of watching Ballesteros play golf was he would show you one shot that would leave you open mouth and you would never forget that was the promise even when he was terrible you know when he couldn't make a cut you know Jeff Ogilvy watched him play a lot his first couple of years in the tour since Seve had lost it you know he really you know he when I say he couldn't play, he was really struck. Jeff would go and watch him chip on practice chip or play around, and there was always a shot that no one else could do. You know, and it's you know playing the, the and the, the promise of watching him do that was you would see that one thing. The promise of these courses is the effort it takes to go there is always worth it. You know, the promise of the experience of playing a great hole or a number of great holes or playing a golf course that's that's great is you know that, that's what they promise you know there's nothing there's nothing there is nothing bland about you're not going to get bland which is the whole point of tom's book the confidential guide to golf courses is if you want you know good blandish golf you know a five you know there's lots of that you can go to you can play a perfectly good golf course within half an hour's drive to where you are somewhere in the world. But if you want to go, what do you give the Himalayan in Nepal a nine? Yeah. Because the, <laughs> the promise of going there, the promise of all the effort it takes to get to that crazy place is that, you know, it mightn't be, of course, the equivalent of Seminole in terms of how great the golf course is, but the promise is you're going to see something that you're never going to forget. That's right. It's built into the experience. And this is, this is, this is worth your, the effort it takes to get to that place. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking to Seve, I remember the first time that I went to Augusta and watched a a practice round. The person I was with and I followed Seve around for about five or six holes, just watched him chip and putt around the greens. And, you know, most of the guys, other players that we watched would, you know, drop a, a few balls in a bunker and hit bunker shots and then go to different spots around the greens and putt. And he was going to places like so off the charts, not crazy, not, 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 not through the trees, but just not in the bunker, you know, just over on the opposite side of the bunker. You know, he was going to spots where nobody else was going and just hitting these shots. And he was taking, I, I forget who the young, he was playing with some young first time player and he was taking these kids over and showing them these shots and explaining stuff to him. And he had such joy when he hit these different shots that from these places that nobody else was practicing from. And it was just imparting that knowledge that he had and that joy of just figuring out how to get a shot up and down and get a shot on the green from an outlandish place. Cause he knew at some point at Augusta, you're going to be in those awkward situations. It was just fascinating to watch compared to the other pros who were going around just following their normal practice routines. Yeah. Well, is that, in fact, John Hagen wrote an essay in the book about the press conference where they asked Ray Floyd, can you go through the, your playing partner's shot on the fourth hole? Yeah, he says, this is going to take a few minutes. <laughs> Floyd was, he said, well, if you've got 15 minutes, let me go through what happened. But there's a famous story about Seve. I think it was Steve Webster and, and someone else, but it doesn't matter who it was. These kids were practicing on a chipping green. They were chipping onto a flat tier, and there was a, 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 a flat level of a green, and there was a tier going down to a hole just on the other side of it. And they were trying to dye this ball on the tier and trickle it down to the flag on the lower level. And Seve walked over and said, what are you guys trying to do? He said, well, we're trying to hit these shots. We're just trying to get them to the top and just have them die 
and trickle down and see how close we can get it. And Sebi said, give me the sandwich. And these, they might have been hitting seven irons or eight irons or whatever they were hitting. And Sebi just took the sandwich out of his bag, out of the bag, dragged a ball across, and he flew it all the way down to the hole and stopped it in one bounce right next to the hole and gave them back the club and walked off. <laughs> and his kids like were just, was that some sort of magic trick or, you know, yeah. what did we see? Which, again, goes back to the golf course. You know, if you go to North Berwick, you're going to see a hole that, the 13th hole or the Redan or what, you're going to see a hole that you, you can't, was that real? Did I really, was that really golf? Did I really see that? You know, when you, if you have one game of golf at Cypress Point in your life, you'll go, did I really play that place? You know, when I played there 2002 and I still think, did I really go there? You know, was I lucky enough ever to go there and play one round of golf on that place? And that's Seve shot. That was, those kids still, I'm sure they're still, still telling the story. What was the story about Nicholas and Crenshaw in the bunker at Augusta? You know, Seve walks up and he says, you want a competition? And there's like hitting sandwich, doesn't they? He had a couple of shots out and good shot. And Seve walks in with his three iron and knocks it out inside them. And he said, you want another go? And they're like, no, you know, we don't, you know, don't, you know. So, you know, that like, like, I mean, I thought. Well, that's a sucker's topic. play. He's been hitting those three yeah. irons off yeah. sand since he was yeah. six years old. A kid. You know, I, I mean, I thought the genius of Mackenzie was that, you know, he wrote about Hagen and the Federal St. Andrews, watching Hagen play that running chip on the old course in the open. 1921, maybe. And he didn't know who Hagen was. He said, you know, let's, let's follow this guy and, you know, see who he is. And he discovered it was Hagen, and he, Hagen became a, you know, somewhat of a hero, and he watched him play a lot of golf. And he, he, he recognised the genius in that shot and in Hagen. So he understood the old course, and he understood Hagen's genius, and he understood how to build courses that brought out that genius. So he built Royal Melbourne and he built Augusta based on, you know, the questions those courses ask. And he could replicate those questions on a bouncy site, journey site, close to the sea but not within sight of it in Melbourne and an inland bit of clay in, in Georgia. He could ask those same questions and put the same dilemmas into the minds of players. And, of course, he didn't know it. But he was designing for Seve. He was designing to bring out the creative genius in a player like, when I say like, Ballesteros. You know, there aren't players like Ballesteros. You know, he was the tiger perhaps, but you know, he was the genius. So Mackenzie understood, because he understood Hagen, and he understood the old course, and he understood how to put those questions on the ground to bring out the genius in Hagen. And it's no, you know, clearly Tom Watson and Nicholas and Feldo, who won on the old course and who won at Augusta, 
could have won at Royal Melbourne. Faldo tried a few times and didn't, but he played well there. Nicholas played there once. Watson, sorry, Watson did win at Royal Melbourne, but but he never won on the old course. Mm-hmm. But the only two players to win on the old if win on the old course, and sorry, the only player to win on the old course, to win at Augusta, and to win at Royal Melbourne, was not coincidentally Ballesteros. Right. Because I watched him play there in 1978. I was going to caddy for him because I knew his manager and his manager set up set up for me to caddy for him. And I couldn't because I had an exam on the Pro-Am day, which still, you know, it's one of the regrets of my life that I didn't blow the exam off and <laughs> not, caddy, not caddy. But I watched him play pretty much every hole. And, you know, what a thrill, what a pleasure to watch him stand on the 10th hole at Royal Melbourne, that great hole. And no one ever went to that green, ever. You know, Norman didn't, Irwin didn't, no one did. Because it wasn't. It was crazy. And anyone who says Seve's a bad driver, oh, you know, let's go back to 1978 and put you on that tee and into that wind at, you know, 270 yards of that green and watch him hit four drives you could have put a blanket over. They finished in that sandy, muffy waste, short of the green, and he walked up there with a sandwich and blew him out to four foot, and he made three birdies in a par. And you tell me he said he was a bad – watch those four drives and tell me he was a bad driver. I mean, give me a break. You know, and, and you know, there, there was the hole that, you know, Mackenzie had 50 years later had left a 21-year-old – me as a 21-year-old, a kid with – you know, memories for a lifetime of watching, you know, the reincarnation of Hagen hit those shots. I can still see them. You know, so that was, you know, that was the genius of Mackenzie. And that, and that was the sadness, I think, of, you know, the depression and the war and what happened after that was. You know, the designers who came after didn't get that. They missed that. You know, we had Firestone, which was not, that was, you know, it would identify Nicholas and Elizabeth and, you know, great players, but it wasn't charming anybody, and it wasn't certainly it wasn't a place that Seve was going to win because it was too regimented and it didn't ask the questions that it didn't give him the freedom to answer really fascinating questions. There was no space. You know, again, the thing that going back to what David was saying, you know, Mammoth Dunes gives players confidence. Mackenzie understood that. You know, cramp, stilted, golf holes, narrow fairways bordered by long grass make for bad players. It makes for bad golf. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't bring out, it doesn't give players the chance to play with freedom. But, of course, you know, the preeminence of the U.S. Open in the history of American golf is that because it was so successful in identifying Hogan, and so the test became hitting down narrow fairways bordered by long grass, mm-hmm. and Hogan was the master at doing that, and so was Nicholas, a great U.S. Open player. So that became the you know, and brought forth the criticism of Aaron Hills and Chambers Bay that well you can drive it anywhere. Well, the, the sad the sadness of Chamb- of Aaron Hills was that there wasn't any wind. You know, right. if it had been windy, it would have been a you know, I wasn't there. I never seen a golf course. But if you put the wind at Aaron Hills, then I suspect it would have been a great open. But there's no wind, and they should have low score, and people wipe it off. Well, that's no good. We need to go back to 
driving them all straight. The, you know, the Curtis Strange, the test that this bought Curtis Strange out, a tremendous player, you know, producing arrow straight, bottle top like rep- the reproduction of one beautiful looking shot after another. And there's a place for that, but it wasn't Seve's game. And, and for me, uh, who would you rather watch play golf? And I, you know, I, I played with Curtis Strange once. It was a 36-hole finish at a tournament in Australia where he won. And he played – it was an easy course, a dull course in Queensland. But he, he missed one shot. He, he missed an iron into the 17th green, I think, on the 35th hole of the day we played. 17th hole But it was a flawless reproduction of one great shot after another. But there wasn't one memorable shot. The memorable thing was the stream of, you know, identical-looking, incredibly competent, beautifully played, beautifully struck, beautifully flighted shots. But it wasn't Seve. And he would be the first to admit that. Yeah. There's something He'd really the poetic. There's something yeah. really poetic about the idea of, of, of McKenzie designing a course that r- would honor a, a skill set like Seve Ballesteros and, and just having almost to wait until the right person came to really exploit it. It's almost like a uh, uh, somebody who who makes a beautiful like violin that's just the the most perfect piece, and they have to wait until the right musician with the right skill set and the right imagination yeah. comes who can fully play this and you know realize the potential of this magnificent piece of art. And it, it seems like kind of there's something very poetic about that notion of McKinsey and and designing for uh, in the somewhere out there there's somebody who can fully take advantage of of these creations that I've made. Yeah, now I don't know who the world's greatest violinist is, but I'm assuming he, he or she is playing a Stradivarius and going, what a genius this guy was to make this instrument. You know, and yeah, you know, it's an, and I guess the great, I don't know, I know nothing about violin making, but I assume that the great violin makers of, are still learning the lessons of the great violin makers of, you know, centuries past. Yeah. Or even even violin so, players, you know, like they're, they're, yeah, maybe yeah. there's there's something symbiotic about the way the, the the manufacturing and the design plays off of the talent that's playing it. Well, and, uh, and the joy, you know, there the must be a joy in playing that instrument, knowing how historic it is, how old it is, how much love and attention went into making it. You know, it's the same joy that you know I get from playing Royal Melbourne or anyone gets who understands the old course of playing it or North Berwick or whatever, the National or Cypress Point, the same joy you get from playing those places is that you know, you know how much love and attention and care went into building them. Right. And, you know, Mackenzie, I'm sure, would his ego would love the fact that, you know, 100 years after whatever, you know, 30 years, you know, almost 80 or 100 years after he died that, you know, he's probably more revered now than he was then. You know, you know, for him to know that people still revere, loving, playing his golf courses, respecting what he did, reading his books, you know, dissecting what he did and how he thought, and you know, I'm, I'm sure he would have taken. You know, I mean, in fact, I'm sure, given that he died, probably close to painless that he would have taken great heart from the fact that you know he's more famous now and he probably wasn't when he died you know and that's a, yeah no con- you know no consolation probably but um you know he was a 
you become something significant in the game. Yeah. Just I'm going to switch gears real quick. I was hoping we could get to this, and I'm just going to kind of jam this in here because it's it's of interest to me, and I think you'll have some insight into it. To me, I'm going to talk about Greg Norman. He's an enigma to me, and probably to most people these days. But when I was when I was growing up, he was Tiger Woods to I think to to people at my age. I would wake up on Master Sundays, you know, in the in the eighty five, eighty six, late eighties, early nineties. And it didn't matter how far back he was. You almost, I, I believe that he was gonna, he had a sixty-two in him. So it, every Sunday at Augusta, even if he was out of it, I just you turn in to see what Greg Norman was gonna shoot. I mean, he was just the most electric player, the most uh, charismatic player. He had, you know, he he had power. He had, you know, everything out there. And I know for Australians, it was that much, you know, but even more so. I, I wonder if you can just kind of, and he's, you know, he's about your age. He was a contemporary of yours. I'm sure you've, you know him. What, what does he yeah. mean to Australians and what did, what do you make of his, his golf career? I mean, what does that mean to Australians about his, the potential that he had? We were talking about earlier about the European tour when you played and he played on the European tour for a, what, maybe three years, four years before he came to America I, and he finished like I, fourth, second and first on the order of merit when he was over there. I mean, he was, he was the, he was the best player in the world for a long period of time. Yeah. His first year was 77. He won the Westlakes in 78, big tournament in Australia. Went there in 77, first tournament, Mr. Cut, second tournament, won the Blair Gary tournament. So, sorry, the Martini tournament at Blair Gary. So he played there from 77, 78, 79, 80, 81, five years he played there. Um, what do Australians make of Greg? You know, they, he's a hero, he's a legend. They can't ever forget or forgive, not forgive, that's, not, that's a completely wrong word, what happened in 96. You know, they, you know, when people make jokes about choking in sport, Greg Norman's, you know, included in that, you know, the great chokes in Australian sport. Yet, you know, um, he electrified the game here. He made the you know, he's a tour grew on his back. He dragged huge crowds to watch him play because, you know, he was an amazing player to watch. Um, he, he I, I think, I've always said that if Peter Thompson could have played the last three holes for Greg, there's no question, no question about it, as Greg would say. Um, <laughs> he had a won 10 majors because Peter was, you know, Peter, when he was, working with Ian Baker Finch, said, Ian, just go out, walk out to the 15th tee and learn how to par the last four holes because one day you're going to be in an important situation and you're going to have to par the last four holes to win. So go and learn how to do that. And I guess if you're going to criticise Greg, and far be it from me to criticise Greg, you know, he's uh, the failure of Greg's career. And, you know, we're using... Two words in conflict: the failure. Of no, did, I mean he won like won ninety tournaments worldwide. Yeah, the guy was incredible. You know, was that there were times when if he could have parred the seventy-second hole or the seventy-first or the seventieth hole, he'd have won. You know, ten majors. In a sense, if there's a sadness about Greg's career, it's that he didn't win at Augusta because clearly his heart was set on winning that tournament. A bit like. Van Lendel at Wimbledon, mm-hmm. and then ultimately he didn't fulfil his 
destiny or his potential, which was 10 majors, I think. Yeah, and then Tiger, I mean, perhaps Tiger's was more than that. I mean, I mean arguably, Tiger's destiny was 25. You know, and we can look at all the reasons why he probably won't get to 25, but, you know, that's why it's a, yeah, and there's Jack who, times he finished second 19 times i mean imagine the career he could have had i mean wow. you know you could write an essay arguing the point that jack nicholas's british open record is one of the most disappointing records in the history of golf you know jack could have won 12 opens but for you know five or six i'm sure he could point to five or six shots you know that the miss putt at turnbury in 77 and you know the out, one out of the playoff at Carnoustie in 75 and bogey in the last two holes in 63 and, you know, um, you know, second to Lima because he got a bad draw in 64. I mean, it was a, you know, Torino chipping in in 72. I mean, there's an endless line of, you know, second to Seve in 77 when Seve was burning out of the car park and making you know, it. Yeah. I mean, Jack could have, you know, Jack could have had a, you know, unbelievable open career. I mean, if I was... Jack, I'd almost feel disappointed that I only won three opens, but, you know, how silly is that an argument? But it's kind of true. You know, so, so ultimately, I mean, how, how did Arnold Palmer only win one US Open when he was the greatest US Open player in the 60s and he only won one mm-hmm. and, Sam, and Sam didn't win any? I mean, how can that be right? How can it be right that Palmer, Nicholas and Ballesteros won one US Open between them? You know, so is that a, you know, we're going around circles a bit, but, you know, is that a commentary on the setup of the golf course? Or, you know, to me, you know, if the US Open, US Open needs to bring out the genius of Sam Snead. I mean, Sam Snead, surely, and as good a US Open player as he was, I mean, clearly, you know, it's kind of tragic they didn't win one, but, um, you know, surely that there was one time when there was a course that let Sam Snead win the US Open. And, and again, he came up against, you know, as Greg came up against Faldo at Augusta on that fateful day at Augusta. And Faldo got no credit for the greatness of that round. I mean, it was always, you know, only, everyone only talks about, you know, Greg's, the demise of that 78. But, you know, Faldo played one of the great rounds ever. Well, that Greg also, also threw away a couple chances too. You know, in 86, you know, he pars 18. Oh, yeah. He's, yeah, he's the he's, champion. Yeah. Or at least, yeah. I forget he's in the playoff, and then there, there's the story, there's the anecdote that Steve William tells in your book about on the 18th hole, and oh, I forget which year yeah. it was, but but you know he's he's telling him you got to hit the four iron, you know that you can't cover the front bunker on 18 and the 72nd hole with with five, you know. So that was in uh, yeah. that, that was, was like 89 or 89. He said, "Greg, it's a four iron shot," but of course, you know that that's, you, know, you could write a million words about Greg Spear. That, I, if Greg was honest, I suspect that goes back to the shot in 86, which, by the way, Peter Thompson would have knocked on the green 10 times out of 10. But anyway, Greg takes the four iron in 86, and he said, I went easy on it. I, I, I eased up. I should have hit the hard five. So three years later, he comes to Augusta, mm-hmm. 89, right. in the rain, up the hill, one iron off the tee, long way to the green, and it's a four iron shot. But he knows that. I hit the easy four iron in 86. I screwed that up. I'm going to hit the hard five. And I'm sure he determined that when he hit that shot in 86, I'm never going to make that mistake again. So he comes there. And Steve, Steve came for me for a year. Steve 
as Ray Floyd said, he was the only caddy I ever had who never choked. If Steve Williams said it was a four-iron, from someone who used him as a caddy, if Steve said it was a four-iron, it was a four-iron. It wasn't a five. And, you know, Greg overrules him, goes with a five, and as Steve said, he ripped it. He absolutely ripped that shot. And it came up, what, a couple of yards short, hit the bank, ran down. He said, then he hit about three inches behind the chip. And, you know, so, you know, so, so, if he, if he, yeah, you know, if, if he knocks it on the green in 86 and he beats Jack, then he probably hits the four iron in 89. He might win the playoff there. Myers doesn't chip in. And then there's no doubt he wins in 96 because he's, he's, he's going to be a four time master champ. Mm-hmm. Fellow's not going to be because there's no pressure on him. I've won this thing three times. So, you know, you can make an argument that that shot he hit in 86 cost him three other Masters championships. You know, so, so, you know, it shows how fickle a game it is, how difficult it is, you know, how, you know, fate intervenes at times. It's, you know, it's a a hard, hard game at that level. So, so sticking with... And, of course, to, to play so well at that level, you know, I mean, Wayne Grady was a great friend of mine. And, and the, the, the luck of Grades, I actually stayed with Grades the year he lost that playoff at Troon. You know, the, the great thing about Grades' career was that he was lucky enough to get another go and he took it. Whereas most guys never do. Vanderbilt, you know, all those guys who get, Simon Owen, all those guys who get one go, most often don't get another go. And Grades got another go at it. But, you know, it's. Um, yeah. I, I guess I'm a weakness of mine is I, I psychoanalyze things no, uh, and yeah. I look at, I look at Norman and you know, you again, what we've just been talking about, like it's, he'll be remembered more for his unfulfilled potential. We'll put, put it kindly. And, and then I, I look at his, all the great success that he's had off the golf course in his business ventures. And you, you know, he's clearly a success in life, like more than almost anybody you'll, you'll ever meet. But and then you look at the one sliver of that, his golf course design business. And we're since we're like to talk about golf courses, we'll talk about this. And not to slag off on him, but I, I always wondered if the mindset that he brought to playing golf and his his inability to capitalize when the moment was was when the pressure was high. I wonder if that somehow uh, equated to like the way he looks at his businesses because. He's had he's had an equal number of you know proportionally chances to build an amazing golf course, and you know for all the opportunities his company's had, he never he's never really, he doesn't have any really great golf courses to speak of. And I always wonder if there's some sort of correlation in the in the thinking or the plotting or the strategizing that there's some continuity there in the way that that he thought on the golf course or hit the way his mind was operating and his business sense i know that's a wild leap but does that make any sense absolutely you know i mean mean, my question would be you know was greg you know he saw jack as kind of a mentor and a a model was was greg and there's a bit of question you need to ask him was he in the in the business ultimately to make money out of it, you know, and and in, in the eighties, you know, in the eighties and nineties, it was very fashionable for famous golfers, golf pros, to put their name on a golf course design business, and and essentially endorse golf courses. You know, they weren't out there spending one hundred and fifty days on site. You know, they were flying in and signing off, and you know, it, it, was, it was a way to parlay their fame in, into a significant income post playing. 
And, and you know, um, I think that here was Jack Nicholas who built his career around four tournaments a year, basically. And everything worked around those four tournaments. And he understood that his record, his career would be judged on a number, which was ultimately 18 or 20 if you want to count the amateurs. But, you know, um, and then he went into the design business and it wasn't about building a few great, great courses that would be memorable 150 years from now. But I suspect it was about how do I run a successful business that I can include my family in and all the things that are great to be able to do if you're a father. Um, so he took the opposite track to the one he took as a player mm-hmm. where I'll go and play the Greater Milwaukee Open and the Phoenix Open and the you know the Maya Cobra Open and, the, and whatever because that's where there's a tournament and that's where I can make some money this week. Whereas Ben Crenshaw, I think, took the opposite tack. I assume, you know, it's always difficult to make assumptions about people's financial position, but I assume Ben is pretty well off. He doesn't need the money. So I suspect he determined that I'm going to be Alice McKenzie. We're only going to build on great sites. We're only going to build great golf courses. I don't care how many I build, but everyone we build is going to be great. And my legacy in this game is going to be a small number relatively, relative to the, you know, the big design firms who are pumping out, you know, a hundred plus golf courses is going to be great golf that people are going to remember me by long after they've forgotten that I won two Masters Championships and what a great player Ben Crenshaw was. So Crenshaw took the, the Nicholas route in terms of his playing career. Crenshaw took that route in his design career and he was in the fortunate enough position, which few of us as designers are, that you don't have to worry about the money. So if they didn't get any work for a year or two, it didn't matter. They could just, you know, it didn't matter. I mean, for me, it matters. You know, if we don't have any work for a year or two, then how do we pay the bills? What, what do we do? Do we shut the door? And, you know, we did that once with our old business, Michael Clayton Golf Design. We just essentially shut the door because we couldn't pay the staff. And, we, you know, Jeff came in and gave us some money and we started again. But, you know, that, that that's a dilemma for, you know, everyone who's, not Bill Crow and Ben Crenshaw probably. I, I mean, Tom, I guess, has probably made a, you know, a pretty good income out of building golf course. And if he shut up now, he'd probably live pretty happy the rest of his life. But, you know, not many of us can. And, you know, one of the things I'm lucky about in our partnership with four of us is that Jeff doesn't need the money either. So he's not, you know, he's just come back to Australia and he's not sort of banging down the door saying, you know, you got to start paying me this. And you know, he's prepared to, easiest way in but you know we're we're off track again but but you know that was Crenshaw made the opposite decision this is not about the money this is about what I leave and 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 Greg could have done the same thing Greg could have hired some of the best shapers and a really cool he could have hired you know Mike Cocking or someone who's a great promising young designer whatever and said I want to build if we only build 15 great courses in our life, that's what I want to do. I don't mm-hmm. need the money. I don't care. I want to build the next generation's great golf courses. And you go, I mean, I had a uh, story about 
Bill Cole went to a site recently and flew a long way to get there. Stood on the proposed side of the balcony of the clubhouse and said, yeah, you can take me back to the airport. Thank you. And didn't, you know, so, so, you know, having said that. You know, what did he I, see that, would, that made him have that reaction? <laughs> well, After it was just no good. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was, it was just no good. So um, he said, yeah, I'm, I'm sure he will have to, you know, I'm sure there are lots of designers who'd love to build a golf course on this site. Um, you know, but having said that, you know, I've been to Talking Stick a couple of times, and that's a, that's a pretty unpromising piece of ground to build. You know, sure, it's not going to make anyone's list of best courses in the world, but the two courses I there, love that course. So it's on my, it's on my list. <laughs> yeah, they're brilliant courses. You know, and, and in fact, you can make an argument they're the two best courses built on a side that gave a designer nothing ever. You know, that second hole is one of the – you know, Bill told me once, he said, uh, some people think the second hole is one of the best holes we've built and some people think it's one of the worst holes we've ever played, which again <laughs> yeah. goes back to well, the, that's good. You the know. controversial, the polarizing. You know, if you want to be dull and boring, don't incite any controversy. Don't be polarizing. Just be bland. Just go down the middle. Don't build anything that's going to upset anybody. Don't go down a tree. Save, you know, just, and you'll do okay work. It'll be fine. It's not going to change the face of anything. I was talking to, I was actually on the phone today with Keith Reb, and we were, we were joking that, like, uh, speaking of Bill Corr and, you know, turning down jobs, like, what, what kind of business model would that be where you just go around, people are wanting to give you work and you just say no turning down work and it leads to more work it leads to more opportunities like that's yeah, such that, i mean it's yeah. it's such a you would could never propose that as a business model for anyone it, it, it's yeah. a losing strategy and yet that's what essentially bill and ben have done and it just increases the desire of people to want to work with them it's fascinating yeah and you know and they've never built and I'm sure they could do terrific golf on bad sites, but they've never built a bad course. So increasingly, their, their reputation is only enhanced. With every Ferrari they produce, it's only enhanced. You know, they're not building, you know, as, as nice a car as they might be, three series BMWs. You know, no one's going to, you know, they're building Ferraris. And, you know, it's just no secret. But, you know, but again, and it's a chicken and egg. I mean, Ben, I assume, was financially secure before he even got into the design business. But I don't know about Bill's position. But either way, you know, they're, um, they made that choice that this is not for us about the money. Right. Well, I, 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 don't think, I don't think <laughs> Bill was, though. I think Bill was probably, no, probably just not, yeah. like, you know, but he just had the belief. I mean, he had such a, uh, a passionate, true belief in what he wanted to do as a designer that he just couldn't allow himself to work on projects that that he wasn't couldn't commit to and didn't think could be great and you know and it took him a while to get off the ground as you know and i guess that's where ben maybe support helped them but it it paid off you know that commitment to excellence and your belief system and doing what you building the kind of courses that you believe in pays off, which yeah. Greg Norman's company, you know, they're on a different model. Well, yeah, yeah I suspect they are. It's about building as many courses as you can. You know, yeah. And Greg would, I remember speaking at a dinner at a tournament here and, you know, one of those big ballroom dinners where there were 600 program guests and sponsors and players and whatever. And, you know, he was, he was saying that, you know, we're building 50 courses around the world now or 30 or, or, or we've done 100 courses so far or whatever. 
and everyone thinks, wow, it's amazing. You know, what an incredible success that, you know, as if it's a measure of success that you're, it's, it's a measure of financial success that you might be building 30 courses around the world at any one time. But how much attention are you putting into them and how good are they? And, you know, is anyone going to go and play them in 100 years and go, what a genius that guy was? I mean, maybe. But, you know, when people are going to go and play Bill and Ben's courses in you know, 100 years' time, they're going to go, wow, those guys really love what they did. You can tell how much love and effort and passion went into making this golf course. And, you know, they're, they're the ones who will be the, the Hagens and the you know, Jones and yeah. Ross and Tilling and McKenzie of, you know, Ballesteros Woods of their era. You know, it's a, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, partly it depends on your ego. I mean, when, how you want, what do you want your legacy to be? How important do you think it is? And, you know, if your legacy is to die with $500 million in the bank, that's fine. That's great. You know, good luck to you. But, and, and I, you know, I'm sure there's no one listening here who doesn't want to die with $500 million in the bank. But, you know, for me, given the choice, I'd rather, you know, die with a lot less, but being respected as someone who influenced golf in Australia, cared about it, did good work, built good stuff, made the game better, gave clubs a course that formed the basis of a more financially stable model that kept them in business, that, you know, all, all the things that golf needs to make it survive, I mean, you know, and just doing it for money or, you know, mailing in you know, con- plans and giving it to a contractor who goes and builds it and turning up every three months to take an walk is, I mean, what's the fun in that? Where's the pleasure in that? I mean, maybe, it, you know, it probably pays your bills and send your kids to school and you can buy a nice car and live in a nice house, but, you know, where's the, you know, that, that wasn't my strategy. Well, it goes, it goes back to... Bill Core and like you know, I think you're wi- yeah. you're wired differently than you know. You're wired more like Bill Core than than Greg Norman. Not that I can't, I hate, I feel bad. I'm like you know pounding on Greg Norman's golf courses. I I've actually played some you know a number of his courses that I I'm quite fond of, but none of them will be considered great. I think the verdict's already in. Well, in, in fairness, I mean Greg worked with Bob Harrison, who's a dear friend of mine. I love Bob. He's a great guy. Yeah. And a, and a very and he Greg you know Greg built a course in Melbourne here at a place called Sanctuary Lakes which was a which was a dreadful dreadful piece of ground I mean it was it was a on a sold salt marsh flat on the wrong side of the sea dead flat and Bob was a engineer come designer who did a remarkable job you know, it's a tremendous golf course on a horrible piece of land and when he did the Moona course at the national I, I think the Moona course is it's not a much maligned golf course. It's a, it's, you know, whether the, the new dope course at the national proves to be better or not, you know, the, the Mooner course is the best of the three. Certainly it was, was the best of the three course at the national. You know, I think it's a somewhere between five and 10 in Australia. Mm-hmm. You know, Greg, you know, Greg, it's a Greg Norman golf design golf course, but you know, Bob did it and Bob did a great job. And I, and I think, it's a, it's a beautiful place to play golf. It's beautifully grassed. Um, it's because it's a mix of fescue and cooch, thanks, thanks to Bruce Grant, who oversaw the fescue in it after a couple of years because the original cooch grass was dreadful. Um, yeah, it's, it's a terrific golf course. It's the best golf course by far that Greg did in Australia. But you know, Greg did Alliston, which was Kerry Packer's private course. He did a 
private ish course for a guy called David Evans, where I'm playing on Tuesday next week, which which is supposed to be really good. You know, it's a beautiful bush course a couple of hours north of Melbourne. So Ellison's a terrific golf course. But that was that was Bob's course too, largely. Right. <laughs> but 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 in the end, you know, their business was not about who did what. You know, it's a Greg Norman golf course is on business. So Greg has to get you know, Greg name, Greg's name's on it, and you know, he would give a bunch of credit to Bob, but, but uh, as Gil would give credit to Jim, and, uh, and you know, Tom would give credit to Brian and Brian and Derek and Don, and, you know, um, uh, and Bruce, and you know, everyone. You know, as Bill said, the greatest myth about golf course design is, you know, the finished product is the work of the person whose name's on the label. As a designer, you know, it's a gross miss in the game. I mean, everyone contributes on some level and, and everyone's as important as everyone else in, in the program and the, the path to whatever goes on the ground. Everyone's got some purpose and some point and some, something to contribute. And you don't break it up as in the who did what. And that's what, but, you know, most people who are critical of, Greg's course in, in America, I've never seen one, haven't seen, you know, what Bob did with Greg in Australia because they did some, they did some, you know, three terrific courses on good sites and some pretty good courses on some sites that Bill Corder was, Bill Corder would have said, just, you know, take me back to the airport. Yeah, I'm exactly. Yeah. With I don't think, yeah. I don't know that they've ever had a, a good site in America. But what, one of the things I'm, I'm happy about tonight, Mike, is that we didn't talk about technology or the golf ball or anything. But I will ask oh, you this, this question, um, just as we kind of wrap this up. It, sometimes dictatorships are bad. Sometimes they can be good if it's a good dictator, somebody who's wise. If you were the dictator of golf and you could make one adjustment, change one law, initiate some policy, do something to make the game better or in your, the way you see it, as being better, what would you change? Well, aside from going back to a shoulder high drop, um, <laughs> what would I do? <laughs> um, well, I would, uh, uh, you know, I would try and well, I would regulate the equipment to try and get back closer to the intent of how the great architects saw their courses playing. I, uh, it dismays me no end to see courses that are still unbelievably great for the members, arguably better for the members, that the game's a bit easier to play and the ball goes a bit further and they can hit a couple more greens in regulation. You know, it dismays me no end to see that, you know, court holes, great holes playing not even remotely close to the way Mackenzie envisaged them. So, you know, the ball is probably the easiest solution. The culprit as far as I can tell, is a combination of shaft, driver, uh, driver size head, ball. You know, um, sure, these guys may be better athletes, but Sam need to be driving at 330 yards too, and so would Nicholas, and so would Greg, and so would Wisdom and Sevian. You know, so, but on a tangent, arguably the, one of the tragedies of the modern game, I think, and Jackie Burke spoke about it a long time ago, is that, you know, the, the equipment has thrown so many kids into the same pool. They've given the same kids, well, they've given a lot of, a group of teenagers, say, 
the same talent set because everyone drives the ball like Greg does now. Every I caddied at a big amateur event last week. Every kid on the watch from the range drives the ball like Greg Norman did, but 30 yards further. And it's not their talent. It's the fact that the driver is remarkably easy to hit. And so is the ball. It goes straighter. It goes through the wind better. So, you know, there's no argument to say the administration has let down the amateur game because it's given thousands and thousands and thousands of kids the skills and the hope that they're good enough to play the pro tour. When, in fact, how many jobs are there in professional golf? 150 in America and 110 in Europe and 100 in Japan and 50 in Asia and 20 in Australia and, you know, what's that, 500, say, 600, which is way more than tennis. But there are thousands and thousands of kids who think they're good enough now because the modern equipment is not distinguishing their skill set early enough as a wooden driver and a banana ball did. So not only did the courses play better, and as Mackenzie would recognise, with wood and ballada, it's given all these kids a hope that, because I can drive it 300 yards dead straight, it's almost a party trick now. I mean, driving it 300 yards dead straight is never cost them need and, you know, Jones, the equivalent of, you know, Jones with Hickory, the equivalent distance, Ballesteros, Norman. Driving it 300 yards now into the wind is a party trick. Everyone can do it. It's like a big deal. It's like juggling three balls. So, you know, so there are two elements to what the equipment has done for the game. One, it's poisoned the, the dreams of a lot of kids. And, and, you know, there'll be some will make it. There are plenty, there are jobs out there. But there are a lot of kids who would be better off having families. And But, you know, to finish up post-spending five or six or ten or twelve years trying to make it on the tour and getting stuck on the web.com tour, the Chinese tour, or grinding out living praying primes in Australia or the, you know, the Alps tour in Europe or whatever, you know, getting to 35 years old and saying, what do I do now? So, you know, the equipment has... I'm labouring the point again, but there are two big issues with the equipment. One, one is how the courses play, and two, that I think it's promising, giving false hope to a lot of kids right. who'd be better off. Yeah. You know, as Jackie Burke said, you know, this is ruining dreams and lives. Go back, play top-level amateur golf, of which in Australia there is no top-level amateur golf post-23 years old. You know, once, once you're 25 and you've determined you're not going to make it on the tour, most kids, as far as I can give up. They don't play anymore. Whereas when I was a kid, you know, there was a list as long as your arm of great career amateur players who were, you know, Tony Gresham who beat David Graham to win the New South Wales Open. You know, guys who were good enough to – and Gresham would play the Eisenhower Cup. He, Beat Ben Crenshaw off the individual title in, Rio, in Buenos Aires in 1972. He caddied for, he, he for Nicholas when he won the – he shot 61 in the Dunlop in Sydney, won the tournament. Gress went to Buenos Aires about eight months later and won the individual title. He was nominated for the New South Wales Sportsman of the Year. And in the interview, he said, who's the greatest player you've ever seen, Tony? He said, Ben Crenshaw. <laughs> Come on, Gresh. You came for Jack when he shot 61, really. But, you know, Gresh had a, <laughs> was a career amateur. And, you know, those guys had good jobs, 
stable family lives, nice houses. They played competitive amateur golf at a high level, and they stressed out about it. Now they were, you know, they wasn't like it was a joke for them. They were, they took it seriously. And you know, Gresh, Scott Hope beat him in the semi-final of the British Amateur Hillside in 1969, which was the closest he got to playing at Augusta. And he was a, you know, and there were there was a, there were a lot of players like that, and that that player is sadly gone from golf. And I think you can draw that bow back to the equipment. And there are too many kids who have been given this 300-yard drive that lets them shoot low scores and lets them think they're really good players when, in fact, their skills are no more than any one of... All the other hundreds of kids kids. that are doing the same thing. Yeah, when Greg Greg and Seve and Woosnaman pulled out that driver, Sandy, when I was a kid, we as contemporary tour players looked and we we we'll have that shot. And perhaps current players look at Cameron Champ or Dustin Johnson and say we don't have that shot. But they've got something pretty close to it. And you know there are no top gunners out there. You know, so they've all got that shot that can dismantle a golf course if they're on their game. But yeah. there are so many of them. So so it's changed the, fundamentally the way golf courses are played and it's changed the amateur game. And I, and I don't think either of them for the better. When I asked that question, I, I actually thought you yeah. might say you would ban all golf carts. That's what I, that's what I thought you might go with. Uh, well, that goes without saying. But, yeah. you know, but, but yeah. and of course, you know, one of the curses of um, you know, modern golf design is that the ability to build golf courses where you don't have to make it walkable. Yeah, you can just drive to the next hole. You know, and has there been a good golf course built where it's predicated on driving from hole to hole? Yeah, I don't think so. But anyway. So let me ask you another question. The the cart is not the curse. It's the golf, it's the cart path that's the curse. Designing around cart paths. And and the, the amazing thing about Landhai, the course we rebuilt in Shanghai, was actually me said to the owner, if you're serious about being a top 100 golf course in the world, you know, here's a list of top 100 courses in the world with cart paths on them. Riviera, Pearl Beach, there weren't many. And the Chinese owner said, okay, get rid of them. So there are no cart paths and everyone walks, which is not something you would think you could swing in, in, in Asia. Not at all. But here was, you know, here was an owner who was committed to, okay, if that's what you think. You know, if you think that if, if we've got a chance to make this top 100 list and, you know, an important part of that is not having a golf course covered in cart paths, then we'll get rid of them. And it's a small thing, but it's a much better golf course because there's no concrete on it. You, know, you don't look down the side of the fairway and, and no matter how well they were hidden, you don't see a concrete footpath down the side of the golf course you know so, so in terms of the, yeah the, cur- the curse of it's not the cart it's the cart path it's the curse of you know where do we put the how do we route a path around this green you know it was something that Mackenzie never had to think about and, and I suspect it's not something that Bill Corr ever, ever has to think much about either which is I'd his go one step, to, I'd go one step further yeah. and say it, it is the actual cart you 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 said something that was in, uh, I think, 
Lynx magazine. I think Tony Deere wrote it, that great piece. And you said like something that just makes you sad was the, the, the thought of perfectly healthy men riding around golf courses and carts, you know, it just, and oh, yes, that, yes. that just I mean, sticks with me. I, I it's, yeah. it couldn't be said better. Yeah. yeah. To see Ricky Fowler on Instagram running around a golf course and a golf cart is, yeah, I know it's hot in Florida, but you know, it's it's not, I, too. I lived there. I played yeah, really? summers, walked everywhere. Yeah, it's it yeah, can be done. No, it's, <laughs> it's no hotter no, than it is no. in Melbourne. No, so you know, golf carts are just. I mean, and you know, and golf courses were. I don't know, maybe Gil Hansen, but whatever. You know, golf courses were meant to be walked on, not ridden over. You know, and, and you miss the. To me, you miss the whole point of it. You know, we when we pitched for the job at Shady Oaks in Fort Worth, we did as we always do and just went out and walked around the golf course. And Mike Wright came in and said, you know, you were the only guy, Mike Wright, Mike's a pro there. He said, you know, you were the only guy who didn't go around the golf cart. And it was like, well, how can you see anything in a golf cart? How can you get any sense of a golf course driving over it in a golf cart? You get no sense of about where the ball goes when you play a tee shot. And, you know, you know that when you walk on a tee, you know how long it takes to walk to where a good drive is. It takes whatever, I don't know how long, it might be, 90 seconds, I don't know what it is, but you just walk to where your sense of where a good drive is going to finish is. But if you jump in a car, it's like, where's a good, you know, I don't know where it is. You can, you, know, you can guess at it, you'll be pretty close, but. And that is, you, know, you just look at the GPS yeah. monitor in the mounted on the hood of the golf cart yeah. and find out exactly. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, walking is a, I mean, fortunately, golf carts are not a huge part of the culture in Australia. They are in Queensland on resort courts, but. I mean, the great thing Richard did at Bamboogle was, you know, Mike just said no carts and there are no carts. And, well, there are carts. There are two carts down there, but you've got to take, a, take one of the caddies to drive it for you. <laughs> um, so for OCCM, what would be the, the dream project for your firm? If you could go anywhere in the world and build a golf course, where and what would it be? Uh, well, it's a tricky. I mean, for us, this dream project is in Hobart because I don't think there's a, I don't think there's, been a better piece of land ever to build a golf course on. It's a spit of land with ocean on three sides, sand in the pine forest with unlimited acreage. And I think it's a, this is Pine Valley on the ocean. Well, not on the ocean, on the water. So, you know, in terms of building a great course in Australia, then that would be it. I mean, what it would do for, you know, I hate the word, but our brand is that well, how many people are going to see an OCCM golf course in Hobart? How much does that you know, perhaps that you know it would be great to get a chance to build a a great course in America. You know, perhaps you get tapped on the shoulders by the Kaisers one day, or you know, Mike gets on well with Mike Junior, and I, you know, I know Mike pretty well. But you know, clearly we're down the pecking order on that list a little bit. So you know, a chance to build a great course in America that where where someone you know, you you're using the word patron the other day, David's podcast. You know, someone gives you a chance to. You know, we're kind of a 25-year-old business, but in a sense, I think that, you know, my legacy is putting together Jeff and Michael and Ashley so that, you know, in 15 years when they're 55 years old and they're the new kids on the block in a sense, you know, hopefully they're Gil or Bill and Ben or Tom, you know, people figure out that, you know, that company's been going for 40 years. But they, you know, it took them that long because they were in Australia, and because no one knew much about what they did, 
you know, it took them 35 or 40 years to be household names. But, you know, I think those kids, and I say kids in inverted commas, because they're 40 years old. Right. And they've got a chance to build a great design business that's going to be what Bill and Ben are or what Tom or what Gil or Mike DeVries or David Kidd are. You know, my contemporaries, you know, because it's slower to get recognised in Australia because you're at the other end of the world and no one knows about you much, then, you know, so the chance to build a course somewhere in, you know, America, because is anyone going to notice a course in Europe, even though I'd love to build a course in Europe because I, you know, I still, in a sense, I... I never really get around the feeling of being a foreigner in America. You know, I think Jeff feels the same. Jeff lived in Europe, in America for 18 years. You know, he moved back here last week. And I never quite get around the feeling of being a foreigner in America, whereas I should feel at home because Australia is very close in, in terms of culture mm-hmm. to America. But... The minute I set foot in Europe as a 20-year-old amateur, I felt at home. We lived in England for 15 years, and I go back to Europe, and I autumn instantly and automatically feel like I'm home, whether it's in Germany or Sweden or Italy. or I just get it. I understand it. I love the culture, the architecture, the scenery. The, you know, and there's not a lot of great golf in Europe, Montfontaine and Fontainebleau and Falsterbrow. You know, there are some... Belgian Royal Zoot and the Hague there's some terrific old courses in Europe I haven't seen much of the new stuff at all but you know I'd love to build a course in Europe but is anyone going to notice it you know so you know for our business the chance to build one course that people notice in America you know would be the best thing for our business having said that you know I think land high is going to be great for us in China we're blowing up a really poor golf course on a great site in Beijing. You know, Ashley's running that project. And I think it's on 10 feet of sand. We can do what we like. You know, there's a cha- the owner's been to Streamsong. He, he wants an inland links. You've got a free hit at doing something, which you know, I think he can do something remarkably good there. That You know, I think the Chinese, unlike the Japanese, who are very reluctant to, you know, change course and, and to – Change their golf courses. Uh, although Mackenzie and he bought a, you know, redoing Hirona, which is I've never seen it, but I assume their best course. One right. of them. Yeah, I suspect the Chinese. Well, certainly our experience, and the, and the two jobs we've had there have no reluctance in blowing up something that they think can be better and redoing it. So, you know, if we can get a foot on the ground in China, I think we've done a good job in Shanghai. If we can do a good job in Beijing and do something that people notice. I think there's a chance to, you know, remake golf in China before it goes too far down the track of, you know, bland signature design, mail-in golf courses where famous architects made lots of money, you know, from the Chinese building, you know, 75, building BMW 3 Series. You know, if we can do a couple of Ferraris up there, then there's a chance that that might completely change the dynamic and culture of golf in China to where they start to appreciate what great golf courses are. Because our owner in Beijing certainly does. He's been to Bamboogle and been to Bandon and been to Streamsong and been to Cabot, and he gets great design. He says, okay, I get this. 
go and build it, you know. And it's not it's not a site that's comparable to Sand Valley or Bandon, but it's on sand and there's plenty of space and there's enough money. And if you know you do what Ashley does and go and spends 150 days in in Beijing with Jason McCarthy, a shaper, and you can do something that people go, wow, you know, that's amazing. But it's only because you make the effort, you know. So, you know, so that, you know, I, I think the Chinese market's there for, you know, designers, us and others to remake the face of the game in China. And I, you know, there were, I think 300,000 people who play golf in China. Of all the crazy statistics in China, you know, the owner of the course in Beijing, Jeff and I had dinner with him uh, in September, and he said, you know, I started my business 30, maybe 30 or 40 years ago, and there was me and a secretary and a driver. And here's a stat that will blow your mind. He said, now I, ha- now I have 1.8 million employees. Wow. And there are, th- there are 300,000 people who play golf. So if he said, I want you all to go and play golf. You all must go and play golf. He could triple or, yeah. no, he could he five could, times. The whatever. Five <laughs> times of the golfing golf population. So, you know, so that's how crazy the he could be potential like, market. That could be like, you know, like the old Firestone company mentioning that. The, yeah. Uh, these old companies yeah. in America, NCR, they'd build golf courses for their employees. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so that's how the potential of, and of course, the government has banned the building of new courses, but, doesn't mean you can't rebuild average and old courses and make them better. And, you know, I think, in fact, I think, again, I think it was David who was saying that, you know, the future of, you know, how many new courses are there going to be built anyway in the next 20 years? The future is probably going back and making, you know, turning dope fives and threes, fours, five into six, sevens and eights and, you know, giving golf, giving golfers a chance to experience just better golf. And, you know, building holes up the 15th of Victoria where people find that one hole that confounds them and, you know, want to go back and figure out how to play that hole. So, you know, it all ties in together, all this stuff, I think. So, you know, but to, you know, to answer your question, you know, to get noticed, then, you know, the obvious place is in America somewhere. But, you know, Jeff's got some sort of profile there, I think. If we can do a good job at Shady Oaks, then and there's an opportunity to do that because I think we can make that a you know redone Hogan's little course where he used to practice and you know build a really cool little par three course which is fun to play. So it's a course that it'll get noticed because of what it is, is because of what Shady Oaks stands for in terms of being you know Hogan's. It's right. a shrine to Hogan that place. You know it's an amazing. I don't know if you've ever been there, but I mean when he died. He left all his clubs to, you know, Mike Wright, who is the kind of custodian of his legacy. And you, you go into the pro shop and the back of the pro shop, Mike's office and the, the building downstairs. And here, you know, there are 900 golf clubs. I mean, in the rack at the back, there's a set of Hague Ultras amongst all these Hogan irons. What's this set of Wilson clubs doing here? He said, oh, you know, he would come into the pro shop and if he liked to look at the set, he just buy it and try it out to see what the opposition were doing. You know, and it's like, you know, this is a, you know, this guy, here's a guy who made a hybrid club, a metal hybrid in the 60s. Right, yeah. You know, pe- people think that, 
you know, the people who are making clubs now are technological geniuses. Here's a guy who, he had a long putter. How can he have a belly putter? In the 70s, he wouldn't be seen using it, but he had one. And he had, you know, he made a driver that, you know, know, Mike sent us out with one of his old drivers and, you know, your first time you hit it, it's a 50-yard slice and a 30-yard slice. And Jeff kind of laughed at us. And then, of course, he stood there and, no way I'm doing that, and he hit this massive 40-yard slice. In the end, he started ripping it, but he said, I can't hook this thing. I mean, maybe the, you know, the secret genius of Hogan was and his swing, and you know, he made a club that you couldn't hook. You know, I mean, Jeff said, I'm trying to hook the heck out of this thing, and I can't make it go left. You know, That's funny. Being, every every you know, golf manufacturer has always sharp. tried to make a club that yeah. doesn't slice. <laughs> he made one yeah, that doesn't hook, yeah. and it worked. The other ones don't. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I wanted to ask you about Shady Oaks and get into that, but we're going to have to leave that for an- another conversation. Yeah. I mean, I think... Yeah, we've gone on way too long. I've always... I always judge my impression of how good the po- uh, podcast is going to be or how it went by my notes. And, and the the fewer questions and notes that I got to, usually the better it was. And I didn't... I didn't... I hardly touched my notes today. We just were talking. Okay, so that was awesome. Mike, I appreciate... Yeah, you're taking the time to do this. It's it was no. a long time coming. I want to do this for a long time, and I'm I'm glad we finally hooked up. Well, thanks for asking me, Derek. It was great fun, and hopefully, it makes some sense. I'm not sure. You know, I'm not sure. I'm, not, I'm sure. Well, I know how many people listen to your stuff, and it's great. And, um, oh, it makes perfect sense. Oh, this is a, I think this is a treat. Uh, this is a, a a little bit of everything. A little bit of architecture. A little bit of a lot of history lessons, personal anecdotes. So it, it hit all. It touched all the bases. It was everything I hoped it would be. That no, was great fun. I enjoyed it. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Wow, what a beautiful golf mind Mike Clayton has. That was a real treat. For those of you who are still listening, still hanging in there, well done, bravo. I know you're probably tired of talking, so I won't keep you much longer. I did think it was interesting, though, uh, he mentioned uh, talking about Ben Crenshaw. It will be fascinating to project into the future that it's very possible that Ben Crenshaw will be known in 20 years or 30 years as the guy who built all these great golf courses and not the two-time Masters champion, Uh, the power of architecture, the power of excellence. If you want to hear more about Talking Stick, we referenced that. You can check out episode three of the Feed the Ball podcast. That's with Bill Coor. He talks about Talking Stick, and I talk a little bit more specifically about the great second hole. I'd like to remind you again to check out Preferred Lies and Other True Golf Stories, the book that Mike wrote with Charles Happel. Really great stories there. Uh, You can get that online. I, I have a link to how you can access that book in the show notes. Another reminder to subscribe to the Feed the Ball podcast through iTunes or some other podcast provider that you listen to. Every subscriber helps me out. If you're not on social media, get on it. It's great. There's a lot of great uh, discussion on Twitter, despite what you might think about golf course architecture. You can follow me at Feed the Ball. I'm also on Instagram at Feed the Ball. FeedTheBall.com has past archived episodes. If you missed anything, go back and look through the guest list. Uh, There's something in there for you. If if you haven't listened to these shows, there's so much great information and and wisdom and interesting discussions with uh, some of the greatest names in golf and golf course architecture. Thanks for joining. Thanks for Michael Clayton for coming on and and sharing two hours with us. That was phenomenal. I'd like to thank the Sundogs as always. I appreciate all of you and all your support. And until we have a chance to do this again very soon, it will be actually. Adios.